Welcome to the Heavy Hole. I'm Tom. And I'm Big Will, a.k.a. Uncle Buck. And tonight, we're not coming to you from Long Island. We're coming to you from Queens because we are at Menegroth, the Thousand Cave Studio, with our special guest, or we're his guest, actually, That's Colin right. Marston. Yeah, don't forget it. <laughs> uh, you, you of course, know Colin from his work in Gorguts, Kralis, Dysrhythmia, Behold the Octopus, and dozens of other projects and bands. Uh, he's, he's worked for uh, bands uh, such as Bearing Teeth, Black Anvil, The Ifago, Immortal Bird, Imperial Triumphant, Dot, Panopticon, Phobocosm, Pieron, Unearthly Trance, and these guys' artificial brain that I know. <laughs> um, and, he, and we're here to talk to him tonight, man. Thanks so much for having us out. Oh, thank you for, for coming. Yeah, man. This is uh, a great little studio you have here. Thank it's you not very so much. little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, <laughs> tremendous, really. I, I, I'm very impressive. Yeah, I see why you called it that the Thousand Caves, man. I had a couple of questions about the studio, but we always get into some kind of preliminary stuff, man, about your past. We do like the FBI thing. All right, all right. So, Background check. Yeah, are you are you, are you originally from Philly? I'm from Philly, yeah. Okay, you grew up there? Yeah, uh, Center City, Philly. Okay, man. Are you from like a musical family, creative family or Um, it's funny. I was just talking to my dad about this. So, n- not my immediate family, uh really, like uh my mom, my dad, my brother, none of them play music really. My mom had a little bit of piano, I think, when she was a kid. Uh, but my mom's father was actually a jazz trumpet player, but had some kind of injury when he was young, I think in his twenties or something, and stopped playing and went into the foreign service and oh wow. Went completely out of music. Um, but he was actually he's actually like the only ancestor I have that was like I could think of as a quote unquote serious musician. My dad's dad played a little bit of piano. So it's like it's not a totally unmusical family, but it's not like my dad was in a rock band and, you know, I grew up on the road. I mean, it's like the furthest from that you can imagine. My, my dad's an architect. My mom's a, a, a history and English teacher for middle school kids. All right. So d- does music come in, in in middle school? Like, where does the fascination with music come in? Are you taught an instrument as part of the curriculum or do you just, like, gravitate to music? I tried music out as a really young kid, but didn't really have a love for playing yet. So, you know, when I was like five or six, I played recorder, took lessons, didn't want to practice, stopped. (laughs) Then I think when I was in third grade, I was like, I want to play the guitar and, you know, took a year of guitar lessons and wasn't interested. And then uh, I think when I was around 11 or something... My brother said something to me one day, like, my one regret is that I never learned an instrument. And for some reason, that like really hit me, or at least I have this memory of it really hitting me. And I still had a guitar from when I used to take lessons, and I just decided to pick it up again. And then I just, like, all of a sudden started enjoying it. And <laughs> I was always really into music, like, listening to it. And I would doodle around on the piano. Like, my par- parents had a cheap upright piano that I would doodle around on when I was really young. So I think it was like I had, you know, the opportunity to, and then it was just I had to wait for the right moment where it seemed like it's something I actually wanted to, to like, be more serious about or something. Yeah, no one can make you want to pick up an instrument. Right. You really so, got to feel it. Exactly. So it was like then I was like, oh, I, I like doing this. I like playing the guitar. So then I took another year of lessons and had a teacher that I liked, and, you know, he'd... I'd, bring in a Metallica song to learn or whatever. And and so that was cool. And that was, I think, when I was in maybe sixth grade. And then that guy disappeared and he got replaced with a guitar teacher who I despised because he was, he was just one of the clo- most close-minded people I, I could imagine. He was, he was one of these guys that thinks that no good music was written after Bach. <laughs> and I'm a huge fan of Bach and Baroque music. So I'm down with the music that he's down with, but... To write off everything after that is, you know, 
obviously is is insane. And then yeah, I tell that to people I don't want to talk to anymore. <laughs> try to teach guitar to kids, but tell them that you know that's that's exactly. You know. So I, I remember bringing in like a. a and uh, yeah, I also have a memory of bringing in a King Crimson guitar <laughs> part that I, I don't even think I wanted to learn. I just was like, I think this is cool. I want to show it to you. Mm-hmm. And I played it for him as this intro to a song that was like only the only guitar. And I remember him listening to it, kind of having a stern expression on his face and saying, that sounds like tapping. And I was like, uh, thinking to myself, two thoughts. I was like, A, I knew it wasn't because I had seen video of him playing it. I knew it was sort of played with a pick. But at, at the same time, I was kind of like, he's acting as if if it were tapping, that would somehow negate its credibility or right. value. Cheating. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, being somebody now where like tapping is a huge part of my playing and I play an instrument that's like designed for tapping. I just, <laughs> that's so funny to me in retrospect wow. that that would have been automatically a negative yeah, thing. Th- you think that comment like stuck with you, and you were like, "Fuck you, guy! I'm getting a war guitar." <laughs> I, I, I mean, certainly that's in there, but I was already so deep into King Crimson and, right. and tapping and shit already that yeah, it, you know, I think just it, fantastic, it, right? Yeah. It, so it, I don't think it would have mattered. I think I was I was kind of into it anyway. Of course. And the fact that he disapproved just made me stop taking guitar lessons. Right. So after that, I would just. Was, was self-taught. So, you know, it was cool because I had a, like a little bit of a foundation of, of being taught an instrument, but I'm not like a super schooled musician. Like I can't read music. I can write it. I know how it works, but I can't sight read at all. Mm. Um, I'm not fluid with it. Uh, and I'm not like very well taught on guitar where somebody taught me technique and taught me, um, I didn't go to jazz school. I didn't learn classical. You know, I just had a guy that I like took in a Nirvana song or, or Stairway to Heaven and he he was just like, okay, here, let me help you learn this. Mm-hmm. So that was cool because that just kind of set me off to do the shit I would do anyway, which is just to learn songs I liked and write my own songs. Right. So and then that's still where I am, although now I just write my own songs and don't really learn other people's songs that much. Yeah. <laughs> what, what kind of a guitar teacher is going to discourage a young, like a kid from learning King Crimson songs? An that's asshole. Just, that sounds really counterintuitive. <laughs> like you'd think that you'd be proud that you're listening to King Crimson from Metallica last year. You well, know, or also just hearing something that sounded kind of out of left field and and, yeah. and, and accomplished and, and sort of technical. I mean, wouldn't you at least be like, "Well, I, I have respect for that," even if you don't like it, even if yeah. the, the note choices are bad to you, you'd at least yeah. be like, "Well, that was interesting." You know, but no. So I knew that wasn't the guy for me. I gotta have. Yeah. I gotta be around people with at least like a baseline of open mindedness to, to operate. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned Metallica and King Crimson. So it's safe to say that you're like at a young age, really exploring metal and hard rock and some of the some of the uh, more like under the surface stuff. If you're into King Crimson, I guess back then, right? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, Metallica. That's. That was mainstream yeah, at the time. Yeah. When I got into them, it was the Black Album was the new album. So they were already a huge, like, you know, the, one of the biggest rock bands in the world. So that was an underground. But, you know, that all obviously led me to the four albums before that, which mm-hmm. I borrowed from my brother's, my older brother's friend. And never, and I still have the CDs. I never gave them back. <laughs> um, a good pal. So, yeah, that. But the King Crimson thing was a little more significant, I think, because uh, my first band that I played in, that I played guitar and the drummer's dad was a musician and he was into like Floyd and Bowie and he was into like seventies art rock and Prague and he liked uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer and he had a lot of Crimson records and he was just into like interesting, weird rock 
And, you know, he was into just hard rock and stuff like too. Like I remember like at the time, you know, he was like down with the new Stone Temple Pilots record or whatever was out. Yeah. But he also would put on 21st Century Schizoid Man in the, in the car, you know, going to band practice. And so I was like, what the hell is this? And um, Pink Floyd Live at Pompeii, which is still one of my favorite band live videos, even though I'm not a huge Floyd fan. That I saw, you know, one night late at his house. And that was like really influential because it just had this spirit of experimentalness and like mm. scariness to me yeah, at the time. Yeah, Floyd's great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the Crimson thing caught on at a really young age, and then I was like totally obsessed with that band, and it was almost like the only band I listened to in high school. Um, and then uh, like death metal and extreme metal came after for me. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I only knew a little, I started, started finding out about death metal and extreme metal in high school, but I didn't have any friends that were really into it. I had the guy that I made music with and we just liked to explore lots of kinds of music. So he was like, check, check out Morbid Angel. Like, this is insane. Like, listen to these kick drums. And I, <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, yeah, this isn't, this is nuts. Like, mm -hmm. but it didn't like, I didn't have like metal friends. So I wasn't going uh -huh. to shows and, and, and like getting deep into it until later when I uh, met Kevin Huffnagel and, this guy, Alex Nagel, who was in one of the first bands I recorded called Thought Streams. Um, and those guys were both super into lots of, you know, lots of metal, all kinds of metal, but also specifically the most out there, dissonant, progressive shit. Um, they both showed me Voivod, Gorguts, Cynic, mm -hmm. Atheist, um, and, you know, some other significant shit. I'm probably forgetting Suffocation. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, all the good stuff. Well, yeah, you, I mean, you know, and I heard all that shit like in the same month. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's how so it happens. Well, Life-changing time. Yeah, I mean, it was yeah. like, the, the, you know, maybe like the summer after high school or something. I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was like right in there was when metal for me, like I really became aware of all this metal and I wasn't, I just didn't, I didn't, I just didn't know about it, you know, before. I knew about a lot of prog and I, I had already knew about, um, you know, like Magma and Universe Zero and some of these interesting uh, 70s and 80s bands that I feel like are an interesting parallel to some of these more avant-garde metal bands, but they're not metal. It's just like, it's a completely different audience, and it's a completely different age group huh. right. of an audience. So, yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, that kind of got got into, uh, you know, Gorguts and Martyr and Voivod and stuff, and then got into more normal death metal and thrash after. Right. You know, I knew Slayer, I knew Metallica, knew Testament a little bit, maybe, but like... You know, it wasn't like a gradual working up to the Yeah, you show. go all the way out there and then you work your way yeah. back to Earth. And like I was yeah. telling you before, before we hit record here, it was the same with me for jazz. Mm -hmm. I had to I had to hear Cecil Taylor and Peter Brodsman and these um, like really extreme free jazz guys kind of before I jazz kind of like hit me. And I was able to kind of listen to the stuff that was a little bit more traditional and really appreciate it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so you, you, you mentioned Kevin Huffnagel, um, and you mentioned a little bit after high school. Is that when you were in NYU going to school? Yeah, so uh, moved from Philly up to New York to go to, to, go to recording school. Okay, I was going to ask you, like, how the, the if, you know, if you notice a difference in the music scene, even though it's fairly close, but between Philly and NYU. So that's interesting that you get into more extreme metal, like, like while you're in college in New York City. Mm -hmm. I mean, because what, 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 what better place to get into extreme metal? There's shows all over the place, and totally. all the tours come through and all that. Do, were you going to like any kind of underground music shows or live music in Philly a lot? Uh, so in Philly, it was, it was interesting because I was actually mostly going to kind of like basement shows and stuff uh -huh. because I met the um, this band Stinking Lizaveta from there, which is an instrumental band, and that's kind of how I met Dysrhythmia was my the, uh, my second band that I played drums in um, 
played a show with Dysrhythmia and Stinking Les at their at their practice space in West Philly, and then meeting the Dysrhythmia guys and um, the other bands that they played in and stuff. I was going to sort of like it was really like the basement punk scene, but with these kind of weird prog bands playing. Okay. So sounds awesome. Yeah. So I ended up seeing some some death metal and some doom and some extreme metal and some like lots of different kinds of music. Uh, but usually I was like, you know, going to see Dysrhythmia or going to see Stinking Liz or um, this band Unsound that was like an experimental noise band with some friends of mine that also did like electric folk music. Huh. Um, so it was like a lot of really experimental stuff when I was in Philly. And then when I got to New York and I kind of started to check out more metal, then I was going to more metal shows. Yeah. Um, you know, the more was still there for like a year or two after I moved, so I saw some pretty funny shows there. I saw like uh, <laughs> Isis open for Candiria, and then I think I saw Opeth open for Nevermore. Oh wow! Um, two things that would <laughs> probably yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> be reversed yeah. these days. Absolutely. Um, and then I think shows just kind of shifted to BB Kings, and so I was you know going to see more of that suffocation. Right. Yeah, yeah. I remember uh, seeing Hate Eternal and Incantation at BB Kings one, one time. Yeah, with yeah. that Summer Slaughter tour. Yeah, played, a bunch yeah, of those Summer Slaughter ones, ago. yep. Yeah. So, um, you you come to uh, NYU, you, uh, I guess, you, you know Kevin Huffnagel from Dysrhythmia, and you start getting exposed to more extreme death metal and underground music. Uh, and in 2002, while you're in college, you start Behold the Octopus? Yeah, so I met Mike, I think, in 2001, right at the beginning of the year or so. So it was like, you know, just a few months into, into school. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I guess, I mean, we kind of started the band right away. I don't know if we had, we didn't have the band name right away, and we didn't have a drummer until 2003. Well, the first demo was, what, what was it called? We Need a Drummer? Um, yeah, our band was called Drummer Needed, and our album was called We Need a Drummer. Or, <laughs> and then the song titles were We Still Need a Drummer. Anyway, there were <laughs> variations on that. And uh, so, yeah, so we actually did write the first two songs, which we ended up recording with our drummer. Um, we did a drum machine whole finished version of that like a year or two before we met him. So I, I kind of feel like the band really did start in 2001. I think we even wrote a bunch of songs that year and then we threw most of them out and we kind of started again like the next school year whenever we saw each other. Right, and uh, wrote fresh first. set of ears on it. And yeah, like, and I think we maybe right took a riff or two from what we worked on, but then we wrote Alcoholocaust and You Will Be Reincarnated, those which were our first two real songs that we wrote, um, that we then re-recorded with the drummer and then kind of became a functioning band. And from the from the beginning, did you always write the music? Uh, like, I, I let, maybe, let me get this right. You you write the music out on paper first, and then perform it. Yeah. That, um, although we didn't do that at the beginning. Okay. So yeah. So those first two songs we wrote just like normal people yeah. write music. Just we wrote riffs, and he wrote some, and I wrote some, and we mashed them together, and we wrote songs together. Um, and then I think we did one more song like that, which is the first song on Nanonucleonic, or our second EP. And then after that was the shift to notation. So the other two songs on that, and then Pain Cave, and then all of Skull Grid, and all of Horror Ascension were notated first, not written on an instrument, and then learned after the fact. And I stopped doing that again now because I, it's just too too much work. Yeah. <laughs> because you what you end up doing is you end up writing stuff that's kind of unplayable. And it doesn't even sound impressive, unplayable. It's not like, oh, I wrote something that's a little too fast for me to play. It's like I wrote something that's slow and awkward and physically I just can't do it because there's, it wasn't intended to be on this fretboard. It was just 
an idea of sound, right. and now I'm trying to do it. And you're like, throwing practicality out the window. Exactly. And it's like <laughs> to such right. a degree <laughs> yeah. that I was just like, oh my god, all right, we gotta stop doing this. It's like a, like an exercise in masochism for a musician. It, it really was, man. <laughs> um, and you know, I'm really proud of the shit that we wrote, and I, I think it was important to force me to think about music differently. That's what I liked about it the most was that I just ended up writing really different music when I would approach it that way versus sitting down with an instrument. Because you have you have patterns you fall into. You have um, muscle memory of things you've played before. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons that would push you into not coming up with something that different from what you've come up with before. So this was a way to make sure that it was gonna be something new and different like that I couldn't have even have imagined. <laughs> and that's yeah. the that's the thing I'm the most into these days is like what music can I make that I can't even like preconceive. Real thought yeah. exercise like to the next level. Well like like you know cuz if you think about the music that you like the most you kind of hear it and you're surprised and you're like what is this? Like I like I I haven't heard anything quite like this and 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 I'm really like intrigued by it and maybe it hits you in some way where it, there's some degree of familiarity that connects with something that you already like but there's like this big uh, this large degree of newness and unexploredness and that's the thing as we all get older that goes away because we just we just hear more music and so right. you can't you can't get as excited about really anything as you could when you were like 10 or something unless you find a new way to, to look at it right yeah. so a new yeah. way to look at it or you try to come you try to make something that you can't even imagine yeah yeah so if you can do that and you can surprise yourself then it's kind of like hearing music that you didn't even make and it's more exciting uh, do, do you as think, a musician, uh, kind of weird left left uh, field question, but do you think that there's a parallel there between like writing music out on paper first uh, before it's created? And you, you said your father's an architect, right? Right. Like, is there a parallel to be drawn there? Maybe like mapping something hmm. out on paper first before it comes to life. You know, uh, I never thought about that, but that's that's like kind of a kind of a good deep thought. Wow. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'm good for one. Huh? Yeah, because he's because my dad. I mean, architecture was what he worked in, but I mean, he's like I think of him as a visual artist. He's not like a paint. He's more he's like a more of a pen drawing kind of guy than a painter. But you know, he's got a logical brain. He's also got a great imagination and. Um, I'm sure that there's definitely like aspects of because well, you're of organizing that. it out all on paper like a map first. You yep. know what I mean? That's that's interesting. And that, like you said, it's an uncommon approach. Yeah, yeah. Um, and especially when you're writing, because there's this graphic element to it. And you know, in writing the the octopus stuff, I I definitely kind of got to appreciate the way written music looked. Like there is there is an aspect of oh, yeah. of, of artistry in that. And you have certain. Um, 20th century classical composers, which really ran with that idea. Like, uh, there's this guy George Crumb. I have one of his records. So he wrote these. It's still. It's not graphic scores. Like, it's not shapes that you're supposed to interpret. It's still like notes on a staff. But he, you know, makes a a swirl shape out of it, and you know, it'll have to do with the piece that he's writing in, in some way or another. Um. So, so yeah, the, the way the actual music looks can subtly or not so subtly like influence the way yeah. it sounds and the way the, the person who's playing it interprets it. I, I remember years ago, uh, a friend of mine who's more musically inclined than me, he pointed out a Coalesce song, if you know the band yeah, Coalesce, yeah, sure. where I guess if you mapped it out, if you wrote out the sheet music, it was, kinda, it was like uh, symmetrical. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or the, you know, like whatever was going on in the song, it was kind of like the, the, the build up to the middle 
was kind of like mirroring the the breakdown from the middle to the end of the song. It was totally. like a symmetrical song. Yeah, man. And and uh, while we're just talking about Behold the Octopus, did you start playing the? It's pronounced the War guitar. Yeah. Uh, you started from the beginning with that. Yes. When did you start playing that guitar? I got the the one that you kind of see in the back there, the, not the black one, but the sort of the wood colored one. Okay. Um, I got that when I was uh, fourteen. Um, I took a uh, like a five day class at a sort of a guitar camp. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this place. Um, I think Andrew might have gone there. Uh, back in the day, it was like National Guitar Workshop. Sounds like. And Greg yeah. from Kodot went too. I didn't okay. know those guys back then, but yeah. um, this like it was like a boarding school up in Connecticut, and yeah. during the summer they would rent it out and they would just do like a guitar school. And I happened to hear about a class with a guy who played war guitar to teach those type of instruments, and you could actually rent one for like thirty bucks for the week. That's Sick. really so cool. I was like, all right, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like when you know, because when where else do you get to try one of these That's instruments? Fun. They're not sold yeah. in stores. They're mm. all custom made. They're prohibitively expensive. Yeah, you know, like. That's a huge leap of faith. Yeah, if you're invest in one. And that's I'm convinced that's why nobody plays them. Yeah, because I would love to have one of those, but you know, it's a lot of scratch. Because the yeah, yeah the the only people that end up being able to afford them are people with money. And a lot of times, if you're somebody with money, that means you probably have a job and aren't like a full time musician. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so you're probably doing music as a hobby, mm-hmm. and uh, and then it, like you know, not to mention the fact that you can't like ease into that instrument. So it's not like you can play one a little bit when you're a kid and then you come back to it later and you get a different one and then maybe you get a nice one later on and then you're like you really figure out what you want to do with it it's like no it's like you have to drop four grand and then you have this thing and then you feel all this pressure to do shit with it but you got to go to work and like what am I going to do with this thing so it sits in a closet and then it gets sold on eBay and you know so yeah it's uh it's a lot I mean just for the listeners at home can you describe that? What it's like playing one of those? Like how many strings you're dealing with? In that? Sure. So it's a 12-string instrument. Uh, I would describe it as basically a guitar and a bass on one neck. Um, although the bass strings run upside down from what's normal on a right-handed guitar, and they're tuned in different intervals. So the bass side covers as much range as a bass and a guitar, and then the guitar side covers as much range as a guitar. So oh. it's almost like having a bass-guitar hybrid on this side mm-hmm. and a guitar on that side. Man, that's wild. And there's two separate outputs you can see at the bottom, so I actually would plug that into a... The bass side would go into a bass amp, the guitar side would go into a guitar amp, and it's, and it's really like having two instruments played by one person. You, can, you must have so much fun with that. That's amazing. It's yeah. great. I mean, the thing is, I can't actually play as if I'm two people. So it, the music ends up being different. You yeah, know, like right. it, a lot of times I'll just play with two hands on the bass side, and then I'll just play with two hands on the guitar side, and then I'll have a part where I'm doing like a simple bass and guitar at the same time. But I can't do like a complicated bass line and a complicated guitar line at the same time. I'm just not. I didn't. I didn't really like um, practice that so much. I just like to write music on instruments, so it's just like whatever I come up with, that's what I play. Right, you're playing your own skill set. Exactly. So, you know, that's 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 probably like my strongest point and my greatest <laughs> weakness is that, you know, I do that. So I don't force myself into like a lot of uh, new territory with playing a lot. You know, that maybe that could help me grow, but at least I, I it makes me focus on getting better at like one aspect. Of course, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, uh, Jack of all trades is uh, master of nothing. You know, so you I gotta, like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you gotta pick your battles there. Really. Well, yeah, it, it, it looks like it, um, it's a snowboard, pretty much. Yeah, uh, um, yeah my, my favorite, 
my favorite quote regarding the war guitar came from uh, Steve Albini, the engineer, and um, I was in. I was, I was at his studio with Dysrhythmia. This was before I joined Dysrhythmia, but they did the record pretest at his studio. And I was just friends with them at the time, and I was in recording school. And I was like, oh, um, if you guys are going, can I tag along and like check out the studio? Because I was, you know, I just wanted to, to learn. Yeah, uh, the field you're in. Exactly, yeah. And, and I was a fan of his recordings and stuff already, so I, you know, was very excited about it. And went there and, and spent the week with them. And I brought my war guitar because for some reason I thought like I had to practice while I was there. It seemed like. I was like skipping class and stuff to go. I think I felt guilty and I wanted to make up for it in some way. <laughs> Who knows? Um, and at one point I had it in the control room and I like left to go to the bathroom. And the story was related to me after the fact. But when I came back, uh, Kevin or Jeff or one of the Detroit guys were like, so uh, right when you left the room, Steve said, dude forgot a skateboard. <laughs> It, it yeah. does look like you could skateboard. It looks like maybe like one ski for me. <laughs> like, you know, or like, like, yeah, like one snowshoe for Will or something. It, it's uh, pretty amazing, man, and pretty interesting music. Um, and Behold the Octopus, uh, you guys have three full-length albums, right, amongst other releases. And your latest one was 2016 uh, Cognitive Emancipation. Released on Election Day. <laughs> and the album title okay there's something to reflect on uh, and and the that's the first one with um, Jason Bowers on correct drums. yeah and he was in or still is in Psyopus yeah I don't get the sense that they're active but I also don't think that they're like officially broken up I think they get together and do a show every now and then um, so yeah but yeah he was the third he was on the third Psyopus album. I think he was also the third drummer, but he might have actually been the fourth because they might have had one that didn't play on an album. I can't remember. Okay, no, I just I noticed that and I thought that was very interesting. Do you, what do you think he he brought to the band? What do you think kind of changed uh, with 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 him being brought in? Uh, he brought a ton to the band, but you don't see it on that album because all that material was written before mm -hmm. he joined. So it's still his drumming, and he he brought his his vibe and like. Um, his groove and so on to it for sure, but those songs had a had a pretty interesting journey. Um, two of them were supposed to be on Horror Ascension. I wrote them for that album way back in 2010 or something, and we just didn't get to them in time. And it got to the point where we're like, all right, we got like almost a half hour, or we had 25 minutes of material or something, and we've been working for two years with Weasel on drums, our second drummer. And we were just like, oh, let's just record and make this the record. And then we'll put that on the next one. And then Weasel ended up um, having a daughter and he got really busy with Lydia Lunch and it just didn't make sense for him to be in a band where you had to do so much homework. He needed to do bands that were just like a little more bang for your buck, yeah. which I completely understand. Um, so we played two of those songs with him after the record, intending them to be for the next one. And so we actually played both of those on tour with it. Then, when we decided not to do the band anymore, I had uh, I had those two songs and I had written two more that we hadn't played with anybody yet. And I was like, hmm, who should I get in the band? Who should I get in the band? Willa Gruber! And I was doing all these Gorguts tours in Europe. I was like over there anyway. And so I was just like, dude, do you want to try playing this music? And he was all like, uh, I don't, you know, yes I do. But I don't know if I have the time, but if you're going to be over here anyway, like, let's give it a whirl. So we did two or three practices at his place in Berlin, and then I think one here when Defeated came one time. 
And he actually learned uh, two and a half or two and three quarters of the four songs on the record. And uh, so that for a while I was under the impression that maybe that was going to be the vibe, but I knew that he kind of couldn't devote that much time to it. So at a certain point, I can't remember if Jason was in the picture already or not, but I think Lilla was just kind of like, I, I, like, I can't really do this band. I mean, like, I can't do it in, you know, as quickly as you want to and so on. And I was like, all right, cool. You know, we'll do, we'll do another band sometime. Yeah, it takes a lot. And uh, so then Jason came in. So then, so now I'm playing the songs with Jason. So drummer number three <laughs> playing the same music. Mm-hmm. Um, so it did change a little bit with him, but there was already so much history to that music. So then fast forward to after that record's recorded, what do we do next? So now I was like, now now Jason's already been in the band for a while, and I was and I was thinking to myself, you know, what do I want to do next, but also what can he bring to the table? And what's really interesting about him that's different from all the other drummers that had been in the band is he's a trained classical percussionist. He went to conservatory. So he's like a total punk rock kind of <laughs> dude, but he knows about this 20th century classical shit, which I've always been super attracted to and has, and has always been a just as much of an influence on Behold as the extreme metal stuff. Um, So I was like, okay, how can we... And at the same time, I was also really sick of drum sets. Just normal drum sets with normal crash cymbals. And I I just was... I record them all the time, and I just was so tired of those sounds. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what can we do different with the drums? So Jason had played some percussion pieces by uh, Zanakis, who's one of my favorite composers of percussion music, and he had some, per- you know, various pieces of percussion from doing that stuff. So I was like, all right, what what do you have? Like, what can we do to change the drum set? So he had a couple of pitched uh, cowbells called Almglocken, and a wooden plank of wood and a metal pipe, and a bunch of like little kind of bell splash symbol kind of things. Okay. So we kept the drums of the drum set normal, like kick, two toms, and snare. Uh, but all the cymbals we, we, we removed and replaced them with those percussion instruments I mentioned and um, the like one stack of completely broken, fucked up cymbals that I have. So there's basically nothing in the kit with any sustain. Every sound is sort of a short, right. bop, quick transition. You know, that kind of thing. Um, so I was like, I want to write music with, with this, this setup instead of a normal drum set. So we got together one day, we set up the kit, I had him sample, I, I set up mics, and I had him sample each thing in the, in the kit, all the drums and all the pieces of percussion, and I used those samples to write new songs. Uh, just program, programming them in logic. <laughs> right. Um, and instead of doing the whole notation thing, I just I just sat down with my war guitar and I sat down with Mike's guitar and I just wrote guitar parts on the guitar and I wrote war guitar parts on the war guitar and I programmed drums. And I'm just like, okay, now it just kind of feels like a metal band again. But the sounds I'm using are like not metal, not metal at all, but like they're there's something different. Yeah, definitely an atypical drum kit. Yeah. Like that's so wild. now so now the whole new album is that. Uh, and we've already recorded half of it uh, after the tour last year, uh, and then we've got the rest of it written that we'll record later this year. 
Okay, so people can look forward to a new Behold the Octopus album maybe next year or something? Yeah, I think it's probably gonna, it's okay. probably too tight to get it out this year because uh, the label I'm talking yeah. to, they usually want three and a half months, and I don't think we're gonna be able to record till August or September, so okay, well, it'll be early next year. Our, our listeners have enough to, to get into with your back catalog as, as it is. I've got tons of other shit I'm releasing <laughs> yeah. this year, so it's not, uh, it's not um, super important. So, well, you, you touched on dysrhythmia, and um, where we kind of left off with, with your history is, is in NYU. Uh, getting into extreme metal, Kevin Huffnagel, uh, and you talked about um, watching Steve Albini uh, record uh, Dysrhythmia, and also uh, wasn't wasn't there also a producer Martin BC? Did I say yeah, that? he did. Uh, yeah, Martin BC totally. Yeah. Um, he did the first record I played on, which was Barriers okay. and Passages. I was just because I'm a little unfamiliar with those guys. I was wondering yeah. maybe you could explain a little bit to me and to the listeners just briefly about the significance of those guys and maybe something that you picked up from them and, and learned from watching them. Sure, sure. Um, those guys are are great, and I kind of sometimes I like talking about them as a pair because they have a lot in common and they have a lot that's like opposite. And I and I both and I respect them like equally. Um, so Steve Albini's, okay, so the things they have in common is, and I don't think this is true of Martin anymore, but at the time it was true, they were both fully analog studios. So you were tracking to two-inch tape, you were mixing on a console to half-inch tape. So it's recorded on tape, it's mixed onto tape, and then it, it only hits digital for the CD master. Um, so that was so that's a similarity. They also, they both have kind of... Uh, slightly similar live rooms and studios. They have these really massive live rooms that are, um, Martin's is, I think, some kind of brick, and Steve's is some kind of, well, they're both brick, but Steve's is some kind of fancy, custom, um, uh, Adobe kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, uh, Martin's is, is just like, you know, the basement of that American can factory building in Gowanus. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's just this, you know, old, grimy Brooklyn um I think it was maybe it was a school, or I guess it was maybe it was maybe it's a factory. Yeah, old, old brick Brooklyn building. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's yeah. a vibe. Yeah, totally. But um, you know, those end up having a kind of a similar sound. If you like record a drum kit in there and like have have the room mics up in in the mix, it's a similar kind of vibe. Mm. Uh, so those were similarities. The other similarities, and these has more to do with the, with us, but both of these guys welcome this approach. Is that um, they were all record those records were recorded like almost 100% live. Um, Kevin didn't even double his parts all the time. It was like, there was maybe an overdub here and there after the fact, and aside from that, it's like totally live live takes. Um, but the differences are, Steve Albini has this very sort of hands-off approach to mixing for sure, but also recording. It's almost like he knows exactly the the microphones and the preamps and all the equipment to use to have whatever sound you're making in the room translate well to the record. That's all he's kind of looking for. He's looking for sort of like accuracy of what the band is doing, getting that to come across. And then, you know, it's rock music, so you are mixing, you're taking close mics and you're making, it's not a classical recording. It's not like a total document of just whatever was there. It, it is like, there's some creativity after the fact. I think that needs to be recognized, but uh, his sort of hands-off approach would be like he'd, he'd just kind of set the mix and then he'd like read a magazine well listen he wouldn't be there like kind of staring at the speakers like okay what do I do you know what, what do I change like it was like it was like okay this this is a uh, this seems good all right like let's let me like not pay a hundred percent attention to this on purpose and see if anything sticks out 
Because if anything does, and I'm and I have my attention there, but also reading this Scientific American article, right? Then I'll know if there's like a bad problem that I gotta fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, changes have to be made. Yeah, and you know he was he was definitely like more. Uh, actively listening during setting up. That was when he was the most kind of keyed in. And, you know, I, I, I remember him trying one bass drum mic and being like, nah, I'm setting up a different one. And then, like, okay, yeah, this, this one's good. And, you know, so it wasn't like he just threw shit up and then called it a day. I mean, he, he did it very carefully, very intentionally. Um, I remember we had to use... We, they had to use single-ply heads on the toms for some reason. They didn't have double-ply heads, so they were very thin and they dented quickly. And I remember, like, after every take or two, Steve would go out there with a heat gun... And heat gun the tom heads to to like stretch them out again, <laughs> you know. So that's like that's something I never even heard of another engineer doing. So in a way, he's got like the most attention to detail ever. Right. And then in a way, he's like not paying attention. <laughs> he's like actually not paying attention while he's mixing on a certain level, which is kind of incredible. Yeah. Um, and he did a fantastic job. I think that record sounds great. I, I know not everybody agrees with me, but I think it, I think it's a fantastic sounding record. And there's lots of other records where I think he really nailed it. Some of those Neurosis records he did. Huh. Maybe the bass could be a little bit louder for my taste, but I think the bass could be louder on like every record for my taste. Yeah. So you know, um, and I think you know Dave's bass playing in Neurosis is so interesting. It's a shame to have those low. But aside from that, just the way the guitar sound, the way the drum sound, it's just so rich and three dimensional and organic and all these words that don't really mean anything um <laughs> but you know but you you know you could tell from the tone of my voice what i'm trying to say <laughs> um so so martin's mixing approach was very uh active he mixed with automation steve didn't mix with any automation it was like we set the levels and then if you want to change anything during the mix you, you do it in the moment his other room, I think his more expensive room had automation, but the room Dysrhythmia was in didn't even have it if you wanted it. So it was like not even on the table. But with Martin, I remember us doing tons of automation in the mix. Maybe not as much as I do now in Logic or something, but because um, it was all done on the analog console, hooked up to some uh, Mac from like the late 80s or early 90s, like an like a old computer black and white monitor floppy disk drive that was running the automation for the for the console that he was using um so sick. and so we, he would do this stuff where like okay there'd be like a heavy backbeat part instead of just turning the room mics up he'd like push the room mics up with each snare hit so that the cymbals wouldn't get too washed out but the snare hits would seem like a little more reverby but without having to add any reverb just with the room mics so that that was like i use that trick now you know I, i'll program it uh with the mouse and he was doing it you know with the faders but I'm gonna it's still that trick. It's the same. It's the same outcome, yeah. and um, you know that's that. You know, so that was what he brought to the table: was this like level of attention to detail. He was focusing on some other stuff, more mix-related stuff. He was doing more with EQ, um, I think, than Steve did, and they and they both ended up with these, you know, kind of similar-sounding outcomes, um, and you know, surely different. And diff- the the Martin's has has a certain strength, and Steve's has a certain strength. But um, I really respect both of those approaches, and the fact that you can almost come at the same problem oppositely, mm-hmm. and and get like an equally good result. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a lot to think about. And where, just where, what other? You mentioned neurosis. Steve Albini's uh, 
pretty pretty well known for a lot of bands, kind of in the '90s, right, early '90s. Yeah, he's not. I mean, he's not really known for metal because uh, I mean, yeah. I'm trying to think. Like, there's the Neurosis records. They keep going back to him, so he's done all their records since yeah. Times of Grace. But I think he did a High on Fire. And I, everybody I talk to about that record hates it. I think it sounds great. <laughs> um, what else? But yeah, I can't think of too many metal bands. Like uh, a lot of the other stuff that I was listening to that he recorded was like his own band, Shellac. Yeah. And uh, like he did a Cheer Accident record that I think sounds really good. And what else? Zanny Geva, that Japanese kind of noisy rock band. Okay. Um, really like the recordings of him they did. He did a Ruins record, which I actually didn't hear until really recently. That was like before he had his current studio. So kind of this, like he had a little bit of a foot into the sort of weird prog that I liked growing up. Um, yeah. But yeah, more like oh, and 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 uh, like Dazzling Killman and stuff like that. He tracked these kind of bands that had like unclassifiable. They're definitely rock bands. I guess there there's a bit of grindcore in there, but they're definitely not grindcore bands. You couldn't call it that. Like an aggressive noise rock. Exactly. Of. Yeah, yeah. So like a lot yeah. of that shit, which. Um, I guess his recording style fits that music pretty well and maybe doesn't fit metal as well. I'm not really sure, but still, I feel like I can apply my idea of his sort of more naturalistic approach to, to metal. And I, like, I feel like for me, it, it, it works to use room mics and it works to like, you know, not like EQ the fuck out of guitars and stuff. Um, so I think it's like, I think his his basic approach to recording like a noise rock band isn't incompatible with extreme metal. Mm -hmm. For sure it has to be treated a little bit differently, but... Yeah, well, I mean, especially this day and age, there's a lot of experimentation, there's a lot of different types of extreme metal. You know, it's, it's hard to even say that something wouldn't work for extreme metal nowadays because there's so much going on. There's, you know, yeah. there's there's a death metal for every season. Exactly, and it's not, it's like, when we say extreme metal, we're not even, like... We're, we're talking about like eight thousand subgenres, yeah, and and eight thousand subgenres which all have their own evolution. You know, it's like you invented a few. There's like a exactly. dozen, a dozen or so that are that you're responsible for. So, I mean, we're talking about dysrhythmia, um, and you you joined. You're you're not uh, one of the original members, but you've recorded four full lengths with them now. Yeah. So what did we have? Barriers, and then we did a we did a split, which was one song, and then Psychic Maps, Testament. Yeah. So four full lengths and and, uh, and a split. Working on anything new? The new record is totally done. Okay. Um, we finished it a couple months ago. Yeah. No. Not last month. I can't remember. It. It's been done for a few weeks. And I mean, it's coming out this fall. What What are like the the? I, I imagine it must make certain things easier, and maybe other things uh, maybe more complicated. You and Kevin both being in Gore Guts and uh, Disrhythmia. Uh, it, I think it only makes things easier. I can't yeah. think of any way it would make things harder. Um, yeah, it was great because I feel like for Luke it was a a bit of an insurance policy because he's like, <laughs> I haven't played with either of these guys, but they play together yeah. already. So yeah. like, they clearly know how to work with each other and are comfortable with that. Yeah. Um, so I think that was a that was a wise move on his part. Also, I mean, just like getting Kevin and Gorgas is such a great idea. Just got, he he and Luke have actually this really similar approach to the guitar. Not in terms of leads and stuff, mm -hmm. um, but in terms of rhythm playing and like the way they both like do so much with arpeggiation and neither of them are death metal players where it's lots of palm muting and tremolo picking. Like neither of those guys play that way. Luke used to back in the day, but I think he was kind of just into Suffo and yeah. wanted to do a Suffo record and that's Erosion of Sanity. But after that, yeah, I mean, he has yeah. no interest in tremolo picking or yeah. Do it, you know, brutal kind of stuff. He's yeah, not interested yeah. in that music. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, 
Obscura and the, and the trajectory, the trajectory of the, the newer albums. And I, I do want to talk about um, uh, Gorguts a little bit, but just with uh, with this Rhythmia now, there's there's probably been more material recorded with you than before you joined, right? Yeah, because they did three albums with Clayton and, and a couple splits. So, um, yeah, yeah, probably a little bit more with me. Uh, higher volume. Uh, they definitely did more touring with him. Most of the touring of the band was done with Clayton, uh, and they really like established themselves with him. So I feel like I got a bit of a free ride because I got to come in. I mean, we st I've still actually done most of my touring with them too. The most touring I've done has maybe been with Disrhythmia. At this point, it might be Gorguts, but um, it, it uh, I've definitely been in the band a lot longer. But I think his period was still like very significant. Well, I mean, getting into into the the trajectory of you joining Gorguts, um, you joined Disrhythmia in 2004, right? Right. And then the same year that Clayton left, there was like almost yeah. no downtime. And, and then uh, you you form you're one of the founding members of Kralis, right? Right. Kralis uh, with a K, just for the listeners if they're not familiar. In 2007, you guys started that band. Yeah. So well, it didn't really become a band until 2008, but we made the record in two that we made the first album in 2007. And it wasn't intended to be a band. It was just supposed to be an album. And Mick and I had been friends for a long time, and I don't think we'd actually ever recorded anything together. I'd like worked on some of his stuff. Um, so we're like, yeah, let's do let's do a record. And Lev, uh, the drummer, and McMaster are both from New York. They grew up in Manhattan. Yeah. But Le they were both in college at U Chicago, I think, at the time. And Lev was like moving back that summer or something. And I was like, oh. This, this friend of mine is moving back home anyway. He's a great metal drummer. We should get him to do the record. Nick was like, sure. So we did that. Uh, I played most of the bass on the record. I think Nick played on one song. And then when we decided to try it out as a live band, like there was no question that it would be anybody other than McMaster. Um, and so that just happened very naturally. And then it just made sense to have him play on the next album and then we were a band <laughs> and then, yeah then you guys started playing live and i was it I, I think i caught you guys at the 2009 maryland death fest uh oh Semi? yeah yeah In, inside right i i want to say it was outside man outside i think was 2010 the we played smaller, inside first the smaller stage that was kind of up on an angle okay almost. i think that was 2010 okay yeah uh, yeah but yeah yeah and we actually played on the wrong stage that Ooh. that year we, we, we like i was convinced we were supposed to go on that one and we showed up and i was like there's nobody they're just like you're supposed to be on another, that other one. We're like, can we just play here? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I mean, the the point being that you guys are playing shows and um, Kralis. If you uh, if you if you enjoy the music of Kralis, there's a lot to get into. You guys are very prolific, release a lot of music, and you have a kind of a habit of like releasing a, a, a few different things at a time sometimes mm -hmm. lately, and uh, like different like a different EPs and, and full lengths. And one of those was. Uh, you mentioned already Dave uh, Edwardson, right? Of, yes. Uh, Neurosis. Neurosis yeah. You did in 2017. I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Is it Loom? There's no right pronunciation. Okay. Oh. It's a made-up word. So. I feel more comfortable now. Okay. <laughs> but the album is uh, L-O-U-M uh, in 2017, and it's a collaboration with Dave Edwardson of Neurosis. You yeah. want to talk about that a little bit, maybe how that comes about? Yeah, that's uh, still to this day one of the most exciting things I feel like that's happened to me because um, Neurosis for me was just such a huge band when I was a kid. Um, and led me to so much interesting shit. And Dave's just one of my favorite bass players. He didn't play bass on the record. He just did vocals and synths. Okay. But uh, also one of my favorite vocalists. So, you know, I was super happy about that. So I met him uh, at the Heavy Montreal Fest when uh, Gorguts played in, I want to say 2015, maybe 14? I think it was 15. Anyway. Um, 
he like came up and talked to us after our set and was just like, I'm a fan, like, nice to meet you guys. And like, you know, like already knew who I was and shit. It really great fucked with my head. Awesome. Um, so we made friends. We ended up like hanging out the whole day, shooting the shit. <laughs> I already knew Neurosis' sound guy. Um, uh, why can't I remember his name? Because he's, he's, he's also Dave. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to fact check that later. But yeah, Dave, the sound guy, um, because he had done sound for Wolves in the Throne Room when Kralis toured with them in 2009, and he is, I think, still to this day the best live sound engineer I've ever, ever heard. Um, I couldn't believe how good he made Wolves in the Throne Room sound because they're they're a, you know black metal is noisy to begin with, yeah, and then their drummer. I, I like his playing, but he's definitely like a not like a super confident, like pro sounding drummer. Yeah. So you're kind of dealing with like a lot of adverse circumstances, and I just remember every night it's sounding crystal clear and heavy and not too loud and not too quiet, and he would be working his ass off. He would not be sitting at the board like diddling his fingers. He'd be like you know running around the room listening and yeah. checking it yeah. out from different places. Anyway, so I already knew him, and so that I think maybe that kind of helped the the connection and the familiarity. So we we ended up hanging out with him and and Edwardson that day, and then uh, Dave said like, oh, the tour we're on right now, we're playing like a, a secret show at St. Vitus, um, in a, in a, like in a week from now or something. Like do, like let me know if you want to go. I'll put you on the list. So I went to that. Saw them, it was great. And then at the end of the night, I was like, let me go say bye to Dave. And um, was like, walked up to him. And I think it was like, I had a weird sort of uh, inspiration in the moment. I was just like, I should like ask him if he wants to do a project together. Like maybe I could have him do guest vocals on something. Like yeah. it just kind of popped into my head. I was like, that could be interesting. Yeah, why not? I'll ask him. You know, I'm about to say goodbye anyway. So I walked up and I was like, hey, Dave, great show. See you later. Um, and before I could even say it, he's like, yeah, and by the way, you know, if you want to do a collaboration or something, that'd be great. Like, guest yeah. vocals are super easy for me. Great. And yeah. I was like, oh, all right, this was meant to be. Yeah, yeah. So what the was... Vibe was there. Yeah, vibe was there. And what was really cool was that we were able to involve him in the album from the beginning, from before a single song was even written, um, rather than having like, okay, we've got these five songs, uh, we've got these lyrics, here's where you sing. Yeah, just spread the jelly on top of the toast. Yeah, so, so yeah. it was it was great because it gave us the opportunity to send him demos as we were as awesome. I was writing shit. So yeah. I sent him like the first versions on guitar. McMaster had a song that he wrote for the record, so he got to hear the bass only version. Um, and also, we were like, "Can you write your own lyrics?" Because we always think it's cooler when singers sing their own words, if mm. possible. Uh, so, and that was something that we kind of learned from having Mick and Nick sing in the band. And sometimes one would sing the other's words, and it'd be a little awkward. And we're like, "Oh, maybe we should just each sing our own words," kind of vibe. So we're like, "Yeah, let's have Dave do that." Um, and also, if he's singing about stuff that he like knows what he's saying and cares about it, then there's going to be a different like emotional uh, impact. Of course. Um, so that was great. And then I always assumed, too, that he'd just be tracking stuff at home and sending it in. But another uh, thing which was great was fast forward two years, uh, we tracked the record in, like, the spring of 2017. And then Neurosis was on tour again that summer, and he was coming through New York, and then their tour ended in Philly. And this was like only a couple months after we finished tracking. So he's like, I'll just take the train up from Philly and we can track all the vocals at your place. I was like, oh, awesome. Because not only do I get to record him 
and you know make sure that the sound is good but also like we can have the whole band there and we can actually like collaborate and like yeah. it can feel like a like a real band and like yeah. we're doing this together and we can try things and if they don't work we can try different things and yeah. So it was great um, because none of us, we hadn't heard any of his ideas yet. We hadn't seen any lyrics. Or no, no, maybe we saw, he might have sent us like one song worth of lyrics in advance, but like we had no idea what he was going to do. Um, so it was really good to have everybody there. And like, you know, 99% of what he did was just like, great, keep it. But there was yeah. like a couple things here and there where we were like, oh, you know, maybe that's too many words. Maybe you could drop that word. And he's like, great idea. And he would do it. Yeah. We'd be done. So we just spent two days tracking that stuff. And then he did all the synths at a cool studio in San Francisco called the Vintage Synth Museum. What? Which is a, a guy that just has this crazy collection of uh, old, obscure synths and keyboards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's also a studio that you can go to and you can pay something absurdly low, like 30 bucks an hour to record there. And he's got a cool setup or something. Yeah. Wow. So I mean, you could go in and just fuck around and pay him 30 bucks and spend an hour and leave. Or you could do an overdub for your record and he'll record it for you. Wow. For like, that's you know, like deal. half of what I charge. You know what I mean? That's, like, that's awesome. It's wow. That's, yeah. re that's really good to know. That's interesting. Yeah. So uh, what was really interesting about the synths that he did was that he didn't play any keyboards. He only did synths. So what that means is that like none of the shit that he recorded was, was him playing a piano keyboard. It was all him doing knobs and getting sounds and textures and oh. like not melodies, like, not not pads of chords. It was all like noisy textural like, shit. Like using like modular rack stuff and like plugging in and kind of like... Uh, he, there might have been some stuff that was modular rack stuff, but like just using just the oscillator and then plugging it into a filter of like, you know, maybe it would be a, a synth that had a keyboard, but he wasn't playing it. Right. Like, I think the only playing of a keyboard he said he did was he taped a key down at one point so to, just to keep the sound going wow. while he manipulated it. <laughs> That's really um, so that was cool because like I've done keyboards on Kralitz records but my approach to doing keyboards in the band is much more traditionally black metal kind of where it's like I'm reinforcing the harmony of the chords yeah. and it's yeah. I'm doing these spacey swelly sounds and it's all very like pitch based. Mm -hmm. His stuff was all textural it was all like noisy and, and uh, um kind of like brought a an element that we hadn't had on any of our records before so you know i was just i was just thrilled with with how that worked out because uh it had um like it was like hearing our band with a with a whole different singer but also a singer that like i was familiar with so there was like a weird combination of newness and familiarity and then having him not just be the singer but be like lyrics all you know all vocals and and textures and you know he had input oh the the whole cover art was was uh his idea um that uh it's the upper the kind of orangey cover there with the spire the sort of obelisk thing um he was uh, suggesting different people to do cover art, and he's like, my friend Carl used to play bass in His Heroes Gone is this awesome artist. Um, you know, and we were all like, yeah, let's whoever we get to do art, let's kind of keep it in the family. Let's like yeah. get somebody yeah. we know. Um, so he came up with that, and I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I used to be a big His Heroes Gone fan, and he yeah. did the cover of one of the records I had, and I was, you know, um, I checked out his website of some of his more recent stuff, and we all decided it was going to be a good fit. So bringing him in was was cool too, because that was almost like having like a, a visual artist in the band. Yeah, for a second. yeah, yeah. True, it's a true collaboration. Yeah. Sounds like you know. And I actually got to go to his mm. studio while he was still painting it. He had like an open art exhibit there, 
at, at the studio and like I got to see him like putting the fish, finishing touches on it. I mean, oh, that's I, I felt like I was making like a like a like a real rock record, like a real record. You yeah. know what I mean? Like intimately involved yeah. in all these. Yeah, I mean, all these other it, yeah. records I make is just kind of like me by myself, and then it comes out on Bandcamp, and it's <laughs> you know, it's like the cover is like something I found on Photoshop and fucked with. Or sorry, something I found on on the internet and fucked yeah, with in Photoshop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was the, it, it felt like uh, you know. I felt like going to the big studio, even though it was still here. <laughs> hey man, to a lot of people, you are the big studio. Right, you know? right. So, and to myself, yeah. I am. Yeah, so you're just <laughs> utilizing all your abilities. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, well, speaking of releasing albums on Bandcamp, though, that is something Kralis has done a lot of. Yes. Um, and it's, it's, to be honest, it's probably my favorite of uh, the, the many different projects you're involved in. Um, as, as a big a, a Gore Guts fan as I am, uh, you know, and in preparing for this interview, I did a lot of uh, like like going back and, and re-listening to things and checking out certain things I missed. And with Kralis, I just want to stress to the listeners: there's so much to get into. It's very, um, very hard to describe. It's 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 kind of black metal or dot 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 or not, like it says on your bank. <laughs> I, I like that because you know it's like there's you know people get old. You know what is what is, what is black metal? What's not? Yeah, kind of like if you want to call okay. it that, fine, Skip, but you yeah. don't have to. Skip the argument. I get it. But it's just very epic. Um, it can be atmospheric at times. It can be like blistering at times, and uh, it's it's really like soulful to me. Uh, but with like kind of a, almost a robotic abstraction to it, man, and. This um, L-O-U-M collaboration uh, with Dave Edwardson of Neurosis might be a good place for people to start, but there's a lot to get into there, man, if you want to go down the, the Kralis wormhole. Just like there's a lot to get down, you know, any wormhole with one of your bands, really. Sure. Um, but yeah, Kralis definitely does have just more minutes of music recorded than they Yeah, tons of, what, what is, I mean, is it just because you guys are all kind of uh, like central to, to the area, you know, in New York City and part of the same scene? And, you know, I know I see those guys at shows a lot and yeah. everyone's just kind of connected. Is it just because it's easier geographically for everybody to get together and, and write a lot? Or um, Honestly, I don't think it has much to do with the geography because I feel like every time I end up like, Living with one of my bandmates, we play together the least. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's that's more of a just a perception yeah. of a fact. But um, I think it actually has way more to do with the fact that we prioritized uh, writing and recording over playing live. That's that's the main thing. Yeah. Um, keeps being a band that doesn't tour. We've done some tours. Uh, the longest one we ever did was that three week. Wolves tour back into the to ten years ago. <laughs> um, Time flies, huh? <laughs> and then we did like a short tour with Ludacra and Withered. I want to say those were both in 2011. We did the really short tour that was the first Gorguts tour with Portal and Bloody Panda. Um, and then nothing, literally nothing, until 2016, where we went to Japan. And we did the West Coast, and then we did a short. No, actually, not so short. We did like a you know two and a half week uh, tour last summer that sort of started in Texas and then went up the West Coast and ended in Wyoming. Okay. Um, so you know we've done like five tours. You know, like I, I can count it on one hand. Whereas well, like when I think about this rhythm, I'm like I don't even I can't even keep track of how many tours. Yeah, we've done. yeah. Um, so so, so yeah. So I think it's like putting the emphasis more on just like you know there was a period of so many records where we're like okay do we go and for this record we're like no let's yeah. just make the next one no let's just make the next one and he just kept saying that over and over again and then we're kind of like well dude do we even tour anymore you know and that was kind of the case up until uh, the Japan thing yeah how, how was Japan for crowds amazing um, I think better than it was for Gorgons uh, 
And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that we actually hooked up with a Japanese band. The Gorguts tour felt, it was great. It was co-headlining with Chrissy, and can't fucking beat that. They're killer. But it had that uncomfortable big metal package tour vibe, where there was five bands before Chrissy oh, and Gorguts every yeah. night, all of which had to pay to be on the tour. <sighs> and none of them were from Japan. Uh, uh. There was a band from the UK. There was a band from, I think, Australia or New Zealand. Ugh. There was a French band. There was a Costa Rican band. What? And maybe there was just four. What? So maybe there was six total on the tour. So it might have been seven. How does this work? They got to come from all over the world to pay to, to open up for Gorguts in Japan. And that's the thing is that that's the way it works on metal package tours all throughout the world. It's just that you and I would never consider doing that in a million years. We would not pay to be on a tour, even if it's with our favorite band. That seems insane. Wow. But certain certain bands and or labels are willing to do that. I mean, yeah. take something like Warp Tour. I think every band is paying to be on that, with the exception of maybe whatever the huge headline is. It's a business model, I yeah. guess. Just, I have like Pay this under, underground death metal perception of things where yeah. it's like alien to me, but it's, that's how... But it's so much of the way... It's the reality the music, of things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh. The, so the Kralis Tour, we toured with Vampilia, who's okay. a Japanese band, who was a good band to tour with because they are... They're kind of like Japan's Kaoda. They're okay, like wow. lo lots of members, like like some like shifting lineup sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes two drummers, uh, always keyboards. Sometimes I think usually violin. Um, and they do. They definitely have like metal parts, and then they kind of have like experimental. They have kind of post rocky shoegazy stuff. Got to check that. What's the name of the band again? Just Vampilia. Vampilia. I got to check that out. Okay. Um, and so yeah, so that so it was great. So what was great was we were with a Japanese band and traveling with them. Um, also, even the promoters on the Gorgas tour were European. So we had like almost no contact with yeah. Japanese people, and yeah. that was the part that I missed the most about that experience. Even though it was a fantastic experience, I don't mean to talk shit about it at all. It was just kind of like I would personally much rather go on a slightly more punk rock tour with. Ja and play with Japanese bands and actually like experience the, the culture of music there oh, rather yeah. than just like this imperial shit of just like dropping in with all these bands yeah, from all over yeah, the world yeah, yeah, and, yeah. you know like showing Japan what we got you know like that's kind of like what it felt like a little bit yeah it's like a WWE like wrestling tour where all the wrestlers are like <laughs> right. yeah that's, that's, that's weird I, I mean I can only imagine too like the kind of culture shock like if you know, if you've ever seen bands from other countries, especially where they don't uh, know the language, and they're they're coming to like New York for the first time, and their their road manager isn't even from around here or something, man, it's a little jarring. Right? Like, you need somebody to show you the ropes and somebody who can speak the language. To the idea, to me, of being in Japan without a Japanese band on the tour, without any Japanese crew or road managers or anybody, that sounds really tough. It was. I mean, yeah. but the thing is, it wasn't. It wasn't actually like tough. It was well organized. It was super yeah, well organized. And one of the I think both of the promoters were French, but I just remember that they were from Europe and they were living there at the time. One of them did speak some Japanese. So he was able to like order for us in restaurants and stuff. But you know, I'm a vegetarian and they kept taking us to like all these barbecue places and I like there was nothing like you'd hear about vegetarians going on tour, there's nothing to eat and that's always kind of a lie. But it kind of was nothing. It was like wow. I would get a plate of rice. Cool. In Japan, of all places, too, I would Japan imagine. Japan is yeah. super, super meat focused. Okay. Red meat, not just right. fish. Right. It's interesting. You wouldn't think so, but I, I learned something new. I've never been. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then going with going with Vampilia, 
Kay, who's the leader of the band, who's, it's interesting, he actually doesn't play in the band, but he's the leader. He's kind of like the manager, organizer, leader, and he's involved somewhat creatively, but he actually doesn't play. Okay. Um, but he's a total food guy. So he took us to all the places that I would want to go. And I think even at the end of the tour, he took us to a vegetarian, like all vegetarian restaurant, not because of me or because it was vegetarian, but just because it was a sick restaurant in Kyoto. Yeah, he just wanted to take us there. So, so yeah, so that, that experience for Corrales was, was really, really positive, I think. And, uh, yeah, no, it was great. Awesome. Well, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about gore guts. Uh, we talked about Corrales. I mean, you kind of have this progression, like, 2002 or, or 01, like you said, Behold the Octopus starts. Uh, uh, 2004 is, is when you graduated from NYU, right? Right. And you also joined Dysrhythmia that year. Right. Three years later, you're in Krauss. When when do you actually open up the studio here? Uh, so I had my old studio in Williamsburg from 2004 to 2006. Okay. And then summer of 2006, I came to the current studio, to Metagraph. What... I think I remember you saying in an interview that these used, used to be more of a hip hop studio before you were here. Yeah, I mean, right. I think right before me, it was it was hip hop, and then going back even further, it was I think more just sort of a general pop music studio. Because the one hit that was recorded here was Snow's Informer, <laughs> which is which is hip hop, but I mean, it's not. Um, <laughs> It's not New York hip hop for one thing. And Wait, I just realized that I've recorded music in the same studio. Did I never tell you that before? I had that cassette single as a kid. <laughs> wow, you yeah. blow. We got to pause for a minute so I can absorb this information. I mean, that, dude, right wow. where you're sitting is actually probably where he tracked it. Snow because, was here. With yeah, like, th- my yeah. control room used to be the live room, so none of these booths were here. Wow. This was all open, and then the live room was the control room. I'm glad you informed me of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, man. That song, I, I don't know what song it is, but there's some popular song on the radio now that's, that's like terrible, that has like a little, you like bring the chorus of that back. Or oh, like, wow, so that's getting re- Yeah, he's getting a check, hopefully, you know, I don't know wherever he is. <laughs> that's awesome. He's probably still in jail because somebody informed on him. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, yeah, Snow, man, the album was 12 inches of snow, that's pro- right. provocatively yep. enough. That's right. Uh, wow, man. Any other uh, history tidbits about the studio before you, uh, you came in here? Um... The old landlord of this place told me he recorded Kiss and Anthrax and Kid and Play, but I don't re- necessarily believe him. I might don't know. just try to sell it to you. Hopefully, he's not listening to this. <laughs> is wait, is the place haunted? Uh, not to my knowledge. Okay, I just um, gotta ask. Anytime, anytime we record someplace else, the building is old as you can imagine. It is pre eighteen forty, I think. Wow. Really. So, um, I'd say the chances of ghosts are pretty high because <laughs> there's just been more time. Yeah, yeah. You ever have any uh, weird, uh, weird things show up on the? I mean, you're you're micing every every square inch of this place up all the time for years now. Anything? I've ever? never, I've never really noticed any any supernatural kind of stuff happening yeah. here. But I also might just be like, uh, I have like a little bit of a tendency to be more of a logic, science brain kind of mm-hmm. guy, and I'm I'm open to the. Well, it's kind of the f- fundamental uh, identity of science, but like I know that I don't have everything figured out, so yeah. I'm not going to pretend that I do. Yeah. But I also am not one to quickly um, listen to like conspiracy theories and and, and, and supernatural s- stories and stuff. Be- you know, even even like organized religion, it's like it's too specific. Right. Like, yeah. The su- yeah. you can't know what. 
the supernatural stuff that's going on in this universe is like that specifically. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. No, so yeah. You get a little yeah. uh, noise on the line. It's probably not a ghost. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to say ghosts don't exist, but I doubt that any of the people that think they saw ghosts were seeing ghosts. I don't know. Well, I, I don't. I don't know. I have my my own opinions. I think it's good to keep an open mind. I I was just really asking, you know, just on the on the whim that maybe there was some story, or you never know, man. It's an old building, but um, when you when you got here, what what sort of renovations did you make, and what sort of things did you change, maybe for uh, from from the old studio setup? Well, so the, yeah, the old setup was didn't really have a live room. It was just two control rooms and then the ISO booths. So when I came in, I just took the biggest room that was there, which was the bigger of the two control rooms, which was originally the big control room for the for the you know the snow era, <laughs> and made that the live room. And then this smaller room that we're sitting in right now, that used to be the live room, I made the control room because it was already kind of set up pretty well as that. And uh, I didn't. Um, feel the need to have visual connection to the live room because I'd been actually like both Martin and Steve Albini's studios that I'd been for the Dysrhythmia records neither of them had visual connection to the live room mm. and so it wasn't even anything I thought about every now and then some people come in and they're like wait you can't you can't see the musicians <laughs> and I'm like no but that I mean I can hear yeah. you that's really what matters yeah. every now and then I can think of a circumstance where it would be good to, to see but really if I want to like go in and check mic placement and stuff I got to go in there and look like close anyway I couldn't see that from across yeah. the room um, I could see if like a mic fell over, but the the drummer's gonna tell me if that happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I didn't have to do too much. Uh, it was already the layout was here, so it was like it was mostly just doing the audio wiring um, and hooking up all the rooms, and hooking up the patch bay. Yeah. It was a mess when I moved in. It was not. It was advertised as a newly renovated studio, but really, like they had started to renovate it, and everything was like covered in two inches of plaster dust. Ooh. So I think I spent a solid week, like seven full days, vacuuming wow. <laughs> with a shop vac. Thanks. So and then I had to get one of the floors finished in there. And there, you know, there's a little bit of setup, but I mean, compared to like building a studio from scratch, it was, it was not. Yeah. Not like that. Well, and 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 I I mean I see there's like instruments. I know you have the other room there with the like the wall of amplifiers and stuff. Uh, what are like just a few uh, pieces of equipment, whether it's amplifiers, instruments, things you use to actually record and, and run sound through? What are, what are like some of the maybe more rare or exotic or just things that have a special meaning to you? Hmm. Um. I don't have that much like obscure gear really. Uh, I can say one thing that I. I could almost talk about the things I don't use versus the things things I do. Okay. I don't own an SM57. I've never, I've never used one in the studio. I, I did when I borrowed mics back when I did my recordings before I had a studio. I'm familiar with the microphone. It's not like I've never heard it before. Right. But that's like the most common mic in existence, and I, I don't use it on purpose. Um, okay. A because I just don't think it's I don't I don't think it's. I don't think it deserves to be used as much as, as it as it is. I'm not going to say it's the worst mic out there. You can't get a good sound with it. Well, it's affordable, you know. Yeah. Right, but I mean, there's all there's all all sorts of other mics that are the same price that sound better. It's just it, yeah. it's it's just that one caught on. Mm -hmm. So, just kind of as a rule, I'm just like, no, I don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's that. I use a lot of. Uh, ribbon mics, which are kind of the less common of the three types. You have dynamic, condenser, and ribbon. Um, and ribbons are a little more finicky, which is the reason I think they're not used as much. They're more, they're more delicate, they can be damaged more easily, and they're less 
uh, they're less friendly to really loud sounds and really quiet sounds. Um, they're kind of low outputs. So you have to crank up the gain a bunch for a quiet sound, so you might get kind of noisy if the sound's too quiet. And if you're in front of a really cranked amplifier, they might distort and kind of crap out. So there's, there's limited applications for them, but I, I really like the way those mics, um, just the character they impart. There's, there's like a tendency for condenser mics to be a little bit fizzy and crackly, and there's a tendency for dynamic mics to maybe sometimes be a little bit nasal, a little bit harsh. And ribbon mics are kind of the ones when people talk about them, they're just very sort of smooth and natural. And sometimes that means you got to do a little more EQing to get like the brightness or the presence you want. But they're also, um, they sound better with more EQ than the other types of mics. Right. So it, it's what's what I like about it is it it gives you this starting point where there's a lot of a lot you can you can do. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of options. There's like a warmth, you know. You yeah, you have this fundamental it. quality that you you can't escape even if you EQ it a lot. It's mm -hmm. still there. But also, if I want to EQ it a bunch, it's not going to sound like a mess, like maybe an SM57 would be, be if, I had to, if I had to EQ it a lot and really change it into something that's further from what it, what it actually was. Um, so I like that about those, and I use those a lot for cymbal mics and uh, for guitars. And, um, and uh, yeah, I guess, like, other gear stuff. I used to be a hybrid analog digital studio, and now I'm all digital. So... Um, Tape is still really important to me in terms of the sound quality that it has. And I shouldn't even say sound quality, because um, it's not like you get better or worse sound quality with tape. What it does is it acts like a very subtle version of an EQ and a compressor at the same time. Or maybe not even a compressor, but a distortion. Because like if you, if you jack up levels into tape, if you can think of like making a dub of a cassette when yeah, you're making a mixtape, yeah. if you do the levels too hot, you get distortion, right? Yeah, yeah. So a little tiny touch of that can kind of just take a little bit of the transients or the elements of the sound that actually poke out more than your ear recognizes. But on a re on a recording, on a digital recording, that's whatever you're sending in, it's recording mm -hmm. these these subtle peaks that your ear isn't even sensitive to. Uh, will get shaved off by the tape saturation. So it's nice because what you get are these much more usable levels when you uh, employ a little bit of tape saturation. So for something like drums, not less so for guitars and vocals, but more for drums where the, the sound is very fast. It's like a yeah. sharp increase in volume and then a sharp decrease. That's the kind of thing where like if you have a peak that's here and then a peak that's like 8 dB above the other peak, Maybe it doesn't even necessarily sound that much louder to your ear, but it's gonna make, it's gonna distort in the computer, or it's gonna make whatever compression you have on the mix like jump down for a second and turn the level down and sound awkward. So that's one thing that recording with a ribbon mic can be a little bit more of a smooth, even, dynamic signal, and then also tape can kind of have a similar effect too. So that's one reason I like the ribbon mics and I like the tape is that you get these sort of like more usable signals dynamically and that makes it easier to mix do you think that contributes to the way some people say you have more of like an organic natural sound on a lot of your records i suspect that that actually has more to do with the fact that i really like room mics yeah. and then i really like trying to get a mix kind of as clear as i can without doing tons of processing i think it has less to do with the tape and ribbon thing i think that sets me up to do that more effectively mm -hmm. but I think it has more to do with the fact that like a lot of times, especially in metal, you're used to hearing these very dry, 
clinical sounding recordings. And my my favorite recordings are like old school rock and roll recordings. Uh, I shouldn't even say old school, like sort of 70s and 80s rock recordings yeah. and classical recordings. I love classical recordings because they always sound good. Like it is so rare that you're a bad classical recording. <laughs> and you're dealing with a lot of different um, reasons why that's true. For one thing, you're dealing with instruments that are designed to sound the way they sound without any help. Yeah, right, like, yeah. And then you put them in a room that sounds a way that you already like it to sound, and you're, and you're happy to hear the sound of the room, and you're happy to hear the way the instrument really sounds. Those are all, like, accepted in that form of music. Whereas with rock and metal especially, there's this completely unrealistic idea of what the of what it's what it can sound like or yeah. what it's supposed to sound like, and you're doing everything you can to push everything that doesn't sound that way to sound that way. Yeah, well, I, we as human beings have had a lot longer time to figure out acoustic music. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, I mean, there, there's there's a, a a lot more you know culture and tradition of it than there is with electronic you know electric music. Totally. Look at the timeline. I want to ask you, what goes into the business end of this that maybe people don't realize? I'm sure people have a lot of fantasies about how uh, fun it must be to just record music all day and play music all day, and you know, I'm sure there, there's parts of this that people don't realize, or that you maybe didn't even realize till you got into it. Yeah, uh, great question. <laughs> Thank you for asking it, um, because yeah, uh, I I work all the time, <laughs> like I. It's rare that I'm not working. Yeah. So the bottom line is that I think, you know, running your own business, but especially running a business that's not um, financially a good idea. How do I put <laughs> this? Like De- Death metal is definitely not financially a good idea. <laughs> yeah, like, like the main kinds of music I work on are like extreme metal and experimental music. Like, great. Yeah, that's going to be... Well, there's not going to really put money in the bank. There's, there's not a lot of dependability on it being lucrative, right? right? And you know, But, you know, getting even away from the fact that I'm working on wackier, less popular forms of music, let's just say I was... I would actually almost be, I think, in worse shape if I was trying to be a pop studio because the competition is so much greater, at least... Yeah. At least, like, the experimental music scene is tiny, so... And the audiences uh, behave very differently. Yeah. So you can put out something experimental that doesn't do great, but if you put out a pop album, if it's not doing great, it doesn't do shit. Yeah, it's like almost like, like a dead. failure of an experience. Exactly. You know what I mean? you're, and everybody you're looks at it as like, that wasn't even worth it. You know? Very extreme, like, sink or swim kind of mentality, yeah. Yeah. So I think the, like, the good thing about working on those kinds of music is that... Everybody that's doing it and that's coming here like really wants to do it just because they love their music. Yes. No one has any other agenda because there's there's no reason to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, okay. So yeah, getting back to your your question, which was more like yeah, like what what's behind the business? The, the business is I just have to take every single job I get offered. I like I can't turn stuff down really. Well, not that I wouldn't even want to, because mm-hmm. the, like um, I'm personally happy to record and mix music that I don't like. So I don't like it doesn't have to be shit that I love for me to get something out of working on. Well, that goes back to uh, something I heard you say in a prior interview that that's why you went into engineering in school rather than performance because you thought you could be happier engineering and mixing other people's music 
even if it was something you didn't necessarily enjoy as a fan, right. rather than performing music that you weren't happy performing. Totally. I feel like, but yeah, because, dude, I even get into these things performing music that I do love in a band that I do love, and I'm like, ah, I don't know if I want to do this. Like, like yeah, with Gorguts, yeah. we, we just, we played the same set for so long. That I was like, I don't like. We need to do something different. Yeah. We gotta like, let's learn an old song. Let's swap out a song. You know. I know the feeling with some of my own bands every once in a while. Yeah. yeah so I just I, I I need new. Of course, everyone does. In. I think, and everyone's got their own tolerance of how often they need new and how new it has yeah. to be. Yeah. And, all and that. so I think like I I know that I'm definitely that way when it comes to playing music. But I but I also already back before I went to recording school, I knew that I had plenty of attention span and. Uh, energy available to just do the recording thing, yeah. even if it even if it was not music I was interested in at all. Because I, you know, I I really appreciate a good recording, and I, and and I'm so opinionated about them. So many record, like most recordings I hear, I'm just like, this is garbage. Why would you make any of these decisions? Um, and so I, it, it, I, it's one of those things where I feel like, well, no one's doing it. Not no one, but so few people are doing it the way that I feel like is a good way yeah. to do it that I, I kind of have to do it. Right. Um, or, or not even I have to. It's not like I have to fucking come in and save the world. I, I just mean like <laughs> I feel like I have something to bring. Right. Uh, even to even to music I'm not interested in. I feel like I can like help you make a recording that yeah. both I think uh, I will think is cool and hopeful and, and, you know, not even hopefully, but surely you will think it's cool. Otherwise, you're not coming to me. Yeah. Um, and you have enough stuff on the market where people kind of understand what they're getting into with you. Wait, what do you mean? Like Just uh, the, the things that uh, you've recorded. Like oh, right. Your, your catalog is extensive enough where an artist goes, hey, I really like what Colin's doing. Let's, let's, let's try this. And that yeah. counts for more than anything else. And so yeah. all my business is word of mouth. And I think that's why it it's worked for as long as it has is because everybody coming in isn't like like I'm I'm thinking of the alternate universe where I run the pop studio again, yeah, yeah, and yeah. these bands come in and they're just like all entitled and they're all like uh, we gotta have this and that and like you gotta mix in this program and and, yeah. and mix this you know I don't know like I'm just totally imagining a scenario. Colin, Not everybody's like that, but Colin Starson. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Extreme Dreams. Yeah, that was the, that was the name that uh, Extreme Dreams. Luke, the old keyboardist of child yeah. abuse, when I moved in here, he was like, "You should call the studio Extreme Dreams." Uh, that's that's that, that could mean a lot of you could call a lot of places Extreme Dreams. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, when you answered that, you kind of brought up a, a few different, a few other questions I wanted to ask you. Um, have you ever refused a job? Has there ever been a band where for maybe a moral or ethical reason with the person or just the music was so bad? or Was there ever a reason where you said, no, I can't record this and you turned somebody away? Not in, not that specifically. Yeah. yeah. I stopped working with one guy who had come to the studio once or twice because he just didn't pay me. Well, so after yeah. the third time, I was just like, "Sorry, I'm sending yeah. you the files. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Like, that, you, you blew it." Unfortunately, yeah. a lot of producers probably have that one or two stories. You know, that that'll, that'll happen every once in a while. Yeah. So there was that, and then I remember there was one time where a band from overseas wrote me, and they were like, "We're interested in bringing you over to like record our record." <laughs> and oh, thanks. <laughs> I remember thinking like, "Okay, cool, great. I'm very flattered, but..." Would you guys rather come here because it's going to cost you way more money to buy me a plane ticket, put me up, and pay me my full rate, um, and pay for the studio? Yeah, get a studio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, so it's like you come here, you pay. I mean, you you have to fly yourselves over, but that's just like four plane tickets, and that's it. Mm -hmm. 
mm -hmm. and, and, and the studio fee. With, with this, it's like you're paying an engineer living expenses, flight, and studio. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just, ha I happen to not like it, so it didn't make me want to go out of my way to, like, definitely make it work. Yeah. You know, I wasn't about to be like, okay, yeah, totally, I'll do it for a reduced rate, you know, or, like, figure out how much they could afford and then agree to whatever they could do. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't super inclined to want to do it anyway, so it di I didn't push it. But I did, I did, I didn't turn them down. I just suggested they come here. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I can't think of any times where I've turned somebody down based on the music. Never. Mm -hmm. Do Do you record any kind of styles of music that we wouldn't normally associate? Like do do what? Like you're in Queens, you're in New York City. Do rappers or hip hop people come? Sure. In here actually, or? um, just recently I did uh like a, just a totally straightforward hip hop session with mm -hmm. just an MC and a producer, and he was just making all the tracks on an iPad and manipulating stuff, and you know I got to. Uh, collaborate with them a little bit, but it was mostly their thing, and um, yeah, and that, I loved it. It was great. It was a different way, of, different way of working from normal, and um, I enjoyed the, the hell out of it. It was great. Um, but yeah, I, I do all kinds of stuff. Like I was saying, there's a tendency for the experimental music and the, and the extreme metal, mm -hmm. but um, I've, I've done country, and well, that's jazz, I mean. more straightforward jazz, and, and you know, very you know, more straightforward classical. Um, but yeah, it, I'd say it, more times than not, it's like something that's got some degree of like this isn't usual. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of like your niche, you know, your vibe. Yeah. But also being here in Queens and Brooklyn and New York City, everything is right there. I imagine there's a lot of different people that come through the door. You know, right, right. Every once in a while. Have, have you been exposed to like a, a, a style of music or, a, or something that you really had no idea about, like a, a new corner of music just by somebody coming hey Colin I want to record this with you you know um okay the first thing that jumped into my head this isn't a great example but I recorded this band that I could only character characterize as technical stoner rock <laughs> <laughs> sounds, <laughs> sounds difficult yeah sounds like they like a challenge <laughs> it was great it was like absolutely a hundred percent stoner rock riffs I mean it was like everything was pentatonic they had those really muted mid-rangey tones like vintage gear um vista light drum set you know they had yeah. everything to, to make them a stoner rock band but their song structures were like just this endless stream of riffs and ideas <laughs> and, and, and like i realized like after a few takes of a song i was just like there's like no repeating in this like that's pretty awesome what the hell are these like nothing like, i've never heard anything like this before and it doesn't jump out at you so obviously at first, because what's different about it is the structure, not the sound, right? right? So if you just heard it for a second, you wouldn't even notice. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> if you actually like sit and listen to this eight-minute epic of 9,000 riffs, <laughs> you're just like, whoa, okay, this isn't something I've heard before. So that's the first thing I can think of. Wow. It's <laughs> like, just for guys that just take bong hits and just forget that, it, like, forget where it's what part of the song, that they just need something going on. It's but like, it was all like, it was all like, you know, musician y and worked out. I mean, it yeah, was, they weren't yeah. just jamming. It was like they, like, really, like, worked oh, okay, this material wow. out. I mean, so technical stoner rock. Like. All right, man. It's not, it's not, <laughs> there's a lot of strains of weed out there nowadays, man. You know, <laughs> you gotta find the technical one, man. But yeah, I mean, I think, like, so much of the stuff I record is, like, in its own genre. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. I can think of a lot of examples like that. Like, um, Inhuman Kind was this band I did not too long ago that's a duo of flute and acoustic upright bass. Okay. And they started as a black metal cover band, and they actually do a Dark Throne cover on the record. Okay. Yeah. But. 
in doing that, they decided to just write their own original music. So it comes off, actually, I think a lot more, much more like almost like technical brutal death metal than like black metal um, in terms of the actual riffs they're playing. But it's, it's like, because it's done on those instruments, like you almost couldn't call anything, you couldn't call it anything other than like chamber prog or something. But really like, it's metal. Like underneath it all, it's yeah, like, yeah. it's metal. What, they're writing like metal riffs. And there, and there are death metal vocals occasionally. Oh. They just come in sometimes. Peppered in. I yeah. like that. Yeah. What's the name of this group? Inhumankind. Inhumankind. I got, got to, just for the listeners, and I got to look into this myself. Inhumankind. This was actually one of the records when you asked me about something new and something old, I was thinking about maybe bringing this one up. This, uh, both of these guys live in um, Spain. I think they're both wow. in Barcelona. Oh, and I love uh, this artwork. Yeah, the artwork's very nice. That, that record actually came out on a metal label, too, that yeah. I Void Hanger label. Um, why were we talking about them? Oh yeah, bands with their own genre. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, just things that you've like like learned. Like this is something new coming yeah. into the studio. You but know? you know what hasn't happened as much as like this. You know, some band comes in and they're like, you know, they do this thing, and I'm like, well, what the hell is this? And they're like, oh, this is this whole style. You didn't know about it. And I'm like, I'm trying yeah, to think of an example yeah. like that, and I can't. I kind of can't. Like mel- melodic uh, shoegaze, uh, something like some, yeah. You know, and then mel- suddenly I realize there's this whole world. I'm trying to yeah, think. Like, I think I'm trying to think, but. Like quasi-electronic swamp shoe core. So, <laughs> so it all started out some some guy in a bedroom in Yonkers with a, a Korg and a four-track. Uh, oh, I'm man, whatever saying. that record is you're describing, I want to work on it. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll send him by. When he, if he's listening, hit, hit Colin. All right. What, uh, well, you mentioned before you hear a lot of things and you kind of, like, critique the sound. You're like, why does it sound like that? What are... Are there any producers that you admire that you follow? Maybe, like, we talk about Steve Albini and maybe not even metal producers, maybe metal producers, but anybody who you're like, oh, he just produced a new album, I gotta follow him. Just like a lot of people follow Colin Marston, regardless of who the artist is. Are there any producers that you're always checking for? I wish there were more, because I, I like, want to feel like I relate more to the field than I'm in, but I kind of feel very at odds with it a lot of the time. Um, but yeah, sure, uh, there, there are. Um, I mean... Billy Anderson is another one who I respect. He's old. He's like been around. You know, he's a, he's a household name to some degree too. But I feel like his work actually in the last, um, like more recently, has actually gotten like even better. And that's you know, I feel like if anything, maybe it's more common for people to kind of get into a comfort zone and then maybe to not progress as much. But I feel like each new release I hear that he records like I feel like oh yeah like he's he's actually like this is even better than the the last record I heard that he did or something and you know obviously there's so many variables in every record because it's a different band it's a different it's a different record it's everything's different Uh, a thousand things are different Um, so it's really it's really difficult I think about this sometimes too with people hearing my work where I'm like Somebody might come to me because they heard this one record they liked, but I'm like, they've heard 1% of the shit that I've done, probably. And it's great that even this, that one singular thing was enough to bring them here. But I'm thinking about all these other people out there that might have heard this one record they didn't like that I did, oh, and they yeah. wrote me off because of it. That's the flip of it. Yeah. And maybe they didn't hear, you know, these seven other records I did that, yeah. like, they would like the sound of, you know, so I don't know. Yeah. What and, and what was that producer's name? Again? Oh, we Billy Anderson. It? He did. He did like the two Neurosis records before Albini. He did okay. the um, Enemy of the Sun and Through Silver, and then uh, you know he did Sleep, Dope Smoker, and um, oh okay, 
but like some of the more recent recordings that he did that I like were like he did a Witch Mountain record I really liked the sound of and he did like the last Leviathan mm-hmm. um, record which I which like has a really good drum sound Starside and, uh, uh, yes yeah yes. We, were, we were listening to that on the way here yeah okay yeah, wow awesome. there you go well, there, there you go, go yeah. really really great album um, and I think he like uh, I think he did like the last Agalock I don't I don't remember that one sounding particularly good. I mean, not that it sounded bad, but I'm just I'm just thinking of other Legend. things. Stand out. Yeah, like, no, I'm just thinking of other records that I heard that he did in like the last ten years or something. But like, yeah, like okay. so. Anyway, so he's one. Um, I'm trying to. I think more interesting to talk about somebody like less well known. But I'm trying to think. Um, I, 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 I want to say there was something recently that I heard that I thought was really good and impressed me. But now now it's kind of. All right. Well, I mean, not on, the, not on the top of my brain. <laughs> yeah, uh, what what obstacles do you face recording your own band? Oh, here's okay. Sorry, okay, I okay. just I just <laughs> thought of it. So, and, the, and this is getting into the classical recording. Yeah, 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 so yeah, Ryan yeah. Straight Streber, I think is his name. Okay. Um, he actually is the guy that I sold my tape machines to when I when I sold them. Uh, yeah. He has a studio up in Yonkers, and uh, I think he just he opened a, a new one there, and he does mostly jazz and avant garde classical and stuff. And he did. The last record for Yarn Wire, which is a like a new music group that's two percussionists and two pianists. Okay. One of the percussionists used to be in that band Z's. I don't know if you ever heard of them. Okay, ringing a bell. They were yeah. kind of this weird like two guitars, two drummers, two saxophones band. Charlie Looker was in Z's. Yeah, that's why. That's why I know that. Okay. Um. Anyway, so he did Yarn Wire's new record, and I think it got like nominated for a Grammy or something. Awesome! I'm pretty wow. excited about it. I, I, don't don't uh, don't quote me on that, but I, I, I'm pretty sure it did. And anyway, that was like one where I, like I heard the recording. I'm like, yes, yes, like this sounds great. But once again, this is the world of recording acoustic instruments. And, yeah, mm-hmm. you know that world where just I feel like the game is just set there, and for rock, it's just like a mess. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, the, like you said, those instruments are just designed to be played and to get the sound out of them. You know what I mean? It's we. There was a, the, you, mankind has had a lot more time to craft that and perfect it. Right, know? right. Um, well, what? Like I was saying before, what obstacles do you face recording your own, recording yourself and your own music that you've written and the bands that you're in? Are there pros and cons to that? Yeah. Um, so, I think really the, I, I notice almost all pros uh mm-hmm. i feel like i can't imagine a world where like i couldn't record myself and i like every idea i wanted to do i had to like go to a studio i mean that seems insane to me and then i'm like wait but that's welcome like, to my world that's all the people coming to me yeah so it gives me a new respect for people that don't have access and ability and and shit to to to, to realize their vision the way they want so i'm like oh shit i'm really i'm really lucky that i can at least make myself happy with my own recordings of my shit um but uh so yeah, so the accessibility, the ease, the familiarity of using the same space over again and the same gear over and over again um, is all does nothing but help. Um, I think one of the only downsides is just that like I, I have to I have to hit record and run in the other room and play, and I can't listen to it as it's being tracked. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean yeah. that's that's really I, I think the only the only detriment. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I could if I looked at it in a really abstract sense, maybe I could say something like if I had some somebody else's ears on it whose I respect maybe I could reach some level that I couldn't imagine or something but that's just in theory because I can't think of anybody who I would right like the idea yeah. of if you were overthinking something and not noticing it or right and maybe they'd catch something or maybe they'd have a fresh approach to something that I I thought I kind of had figured out but maybe they have a way of doing it I'm not going right. to say a better way but a way of doing it that actually I would like more 
Yeah. That's yeah, that's possible. A, that's a big could be. Yeah, yeah. it's a big could be. Yeah. And it's and the practicality of doing it myself completely out, outweighs that could be. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, the fact that I don't have to, that I can do a record without an advance and still do it and, you know, lose money, but, like, still not actually spend money. Right. You yeah. know, it's just like, okay, I'm just not getting paid this week. Yeah. But I didn't have to lay out this much and I can do it on my own schedule and I can plan exactly when I want to record this mm -hmm. and I can also record something and then come back to it a week later and change something if I want not that I'm actually the kind of guy that does that much of that mm -hmm. but I could do it you know right. and for other people's records that comes in really handy mm -hmm. it also allows me to work on many different records at the same time which I have to do if I had if I only did one record at a time there'd just be no way for this to, to work mm -hmm. like how many records are you working on at any given time uh, I'm gonna say, like, if you, just for other people's stuff, I'd say maybe five, and then all my bands are always working on a record, so add, <laughs> yeah. add another five yeah. to ten. Wow, all right, so uh, we want to be respectful of your time, and, and we do have limited time for the, for the podcast. I, I did want to touch on Gore Guts. You mentioned your band. That's probably the most notable to some people, especially, like, the more death metal uh, core of our listenership. You joined Gorguts in 2009? Uh, 2008, actually. 2008, and then uh, Colored Sands is your first album with Gorguts, right? <laughs> in 2013. So, well, yeah, so, so, you already, so you already see where I'm going. So, yep. <laughs> so I mean, did Luke LeMay see Dysrhythmia and just think Colin and, and, uh, and Kevin, those two? Or, like, how did it happen? Yes, but I knew him first. Okay. So I met Luke when Mike Lerner from the Behold the Octopus guitar player and I took a road trip up to Montreal in like, when was this? I don't know, I'm gonna say 2004, something like that. Um, it was Negativa's first show ever, and it was Martyr's album release show for Feeding the Abscess. So maybe it was 2006. That's a hot show. Two separate shows. Yeah. It was One was Friday, one was Saturday. Oh, wow, hot so weekend. So <laughs> Mike and I were just like, um, yeah, we're gonna go up for that. You know, because yeah. that was just our favorite shit at the time. It's worth a drive, those two bands, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and it was cool, because I think it was MySpace at the time. I, I got in touch with Steve Hurdle, and he was like, oh, if you come up, um, you can stay at our bass player's house, uh, Miguel, the bass player from Negativa. So I was like, oh, sick. So I already kind of knew Steve through the internet, and then met Miguel at the Martyr Show, stayed at his house, we made friends. Um, Miguel also was in the first, was in Ion Dissonance, a little fun fact, the first record. We've, we've discussed them on the podcast, yeah. Okay, cool. So, uh, so then at the Negative TV show, which was the next night, I actually met Luke for the first time. Um, and so we knew each other then, and so fast forward two years later, or three years or whatever it was, Luke decides to, or Steve suggests that Luke gets Gorguts back together. Luke's like, okay, cool. And then I think Steve even suggested, oh, Luke, so Luke already knew me, so he's already like, I want to get, uh, I want to get John Longstreth on drums. He already had that in mind. I think he was like into the. It was funny because it wasn't even from Origin; it was from Dim Mock. Oh, oh wow, yeah. that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Knives though. of Ice. He like heard yes. that record. He's like, that's the drummer I want. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Dim Mock actually a huge uh, artificial brain band. Those guys love Dim Mock. Always have. I, 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 yeah. I didn't even know Dim Mock until I joined Artificial Brain, and those guys at one point wanted to even cover a song. Always playing them in the tour van and all oh, that. Oh wow! Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So similarly big for Luke, and so yeah. So that's how John came in. So I came in because he he knew me from 
us meeting and I, I you know, Steve had known Behold the Arctopus and stuff, so yeah. that connection was already there. And then I think Steve Hurdle was also the guy that was just like, well, maybe you should get Kevin as the, well, I think actually at first he asked to be in it and Luke was like, oh, I don't want to do Gorguts and Negativi with you. Like we should just, if, if, if we're going to do Negativi, like let's, yeah. let me get somebody different in Gorguts this time. And everybody was okay with that, I guess. Um, and so I think then Steve was just like, well, maybe you should get the guitarist from Disrhythmia. Colin, Colin already plays with him. Check out this YouTube video. Yeah. And I think Luke saw a video of us playing and was just like, oh, yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah this, these guys were, are perfect for, for yeah. Moments. Yeah. Um, so that's how that came about. And then, yeah, he's Luke just sent us. We, Disrhythmia was on tour one summer, and uh, we were staying at some kid's house in Lawrence, Kansas. And uh, actually, I think it was uh, I think it was Dylan, who's now in Bellwitch, the bass player of Bellwitch. He used to play in this band that we play with whenever we went to Lawrence, Kansas. Okay. And we'd stay at his house, and um, Kevin like runs upstairs, and he's like, "Colin, I just, just got an email from Luke Lemay. He wants us to join Gorguts." <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, like, I don't think there'll ever be another moment in my life. That was yeah. where I was in such disbelief. Wow. You know what I mean? Because that's yeah. different from getting to do a record with Dave. And, you know, that's just a new level because that's just like from out of left field and they, they want you in the band. You're joining a legacy. Yeah, yeah, and it was just like, I was like, that's my favorite metal band. Like, <laughs> yeah. what? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, not yeah. even death metal band, but like, that's kind of like, that was such a huge band for me. Awesome. Wow. So I was, you know, I was just like, you're full of shit. <laughs> so, whatever we figured out it was it was for real and yeah. you know uh, at the time I mean I, I went through the same thing I went through when I joined Dysrhythmia which in retrospect is hilarious to have this thought but like I was like do I have time for this can I can I join another band you know like thinking like can I have more than one band and now I'm just like I have 10 and I'm still want to have more so it's just like that's yeah. definitely not an issue anymore but like at the time too I, I remember thinking like well, this probably isn't that practical, but like I actually can't say no. Like I have to say yes no matter what and just see where this goes. When Gorguts calls. Yeah, you can't. You know? Yeah, and, and then Kevin had the same reaction, and I, you know Kevin was a was a big fan too. Um, but I think I don't know. I'm not gonna say it was big a bigger deal for me than him, but like I I think like we ended up having the same either regardless of how it was for us personally, we had the same reaction where we're, we were both like we can't say. No. Yeah, yeah, that reminds me. It's like um, Chris Basile from Pyrexia uh, was relating to us when uh, two session members that were jamming with Pyrexia left to join Suffocation. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what are you going to do when Suffocation calls? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You know, like you, you can't say no, man. So um, you you join Goreguts, and then a number of years pass, like you said before, before the Colored Sands album is released in 2013. What's what's the process over those years? Are you learning older Gorguts material? Are you are you just writing? Or? We started out, if memory serves, with the new stuff. Okay. Uh, Luke played with John a little bit in 2008, and I think there's that YouTube video of the two of them jamming uh, from that. And then we had our first practice with all of us, and I think early in 2009, or like maybe in the spring. And by that point, we had three songs because we did the three song. We did two demos here at the studio, like on tape and everything. Um, and I think I want to say the first one was three songs it might have just been two songs and uh, so that's what we it was crazy so our first practice ever we like did a fully multi-tracked multi-miked professional recording basically <laughs> that was still instrumental because none yeah. of the vocals were written until way later kind of not surprising considering who's involved I mean it's, yeah and also the, just the fact yeah. of the 
it being long distance and like we this is all the time we have together so like we better be ready yeah so there's that vibe. yeah and that's yeah. why i think it's funny i brought this up a little bit with like people that i live closer to i work with less there's this thing that happens with a long distance band mm-hmm. where like you can't come in unprepared because this is it yeah you just have this it's one true. day it's true yeah it's true. um so the bands i'm in that practice every week actually get less done <laughs> um so yeah, the reason it took so long. All right, so we worked on the music for two years, 2008 and 2000. No, yeah, yeah, eight nine. We did MDF in 2010. I think it was pretty much all written by then. And then um, Luke had in mind to go to Wild Studio, which was Pierre who did uh, from Wisdom and Obscura. Uh-huh. That was his current studio. This really nice, beautiful, like converted, um, like log cabins rich person summer home on a lake yeah, in quebec yeah. in a national park wow if if you can picture the music video for tom sawyer by rush mm. where they're in that fancy all like sort of wooden log cabin studio that's what this studio looks like it's not the same studio they yeah. actually are both yeah. in quebec uh-huh. but it's like totally that style it's just your typical quebec studio oh yeah. man it was like so so yeah luke was like yeah i want to bring you up to this just fancy studio and do it and so we were all stoked and i was like well you know it's going to be weird to not engineer a record that i play on but like you know this is not my band and yeah. i'm mm-hmm. i'm i'm into the idea of it you know this yeah. will be cool so 2011 february we go up to canada why did we do that so cold oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and we did all the basic tracking and then nothing for two years. Okay, not exactly nothing. Luke gradually recorded, wrote the lyrics and recorded the vocals here at my studio over the next two years. But the reason it took so long, I blame not on the slow vocal process, but on the stupid record contract bullshit. Huh. So Gorguts was still under contract with Century Media from Wisdom. Which, oh, it was uh, Olympic got bought by Century Media, so their contract got bought. Yeah. So Luke, as as the typical just, like, you know, positive, good faith dude, he, like, calls up Century Media. He's like, hey, is my contract still good? Can I put out the record with you? And they're like, yeah, yeah, great. And they send it over, and it's, like, a totally terrible, Uh, terrible deal. And so Luke's just like, this is, this is, like, I can't, I'm not going to do this. So two years of legal bullshit to extricate himself from that contract and to find a new label and to work that out with Season of Mist. So during that time, at least we got all the vocals and the couple solos that were left to be tracked here in my studio. And by that point, we'd waited so long. And I think I I had, like, even maybe a year before that, I was thinking, like, let's just finish it here. Because at this point, like, what, we're going to, like, wait and wait for him to be available and then take all this shit that I recorded back up. And I was just like, why not, you know, maybe we should just finish yeah, it here yeah, yeah. Um, like I can we can spend as long as we want mixing it we can get exactly the record we wanted which is something Luke would never been able to do before all of the records in the past were just like go and bang it out that's it you get like a day or two to mix that's interesting to, to, to think about yeah yeah especially with those two records so you that you record Colored Sands and it comes out on Seasons of Mist in 2013 yeah so and it wasn't even until September so it was like almost three <laughs> years of waiting <laughs> Um, wow, and and then uh, you know there's a shorter amount of time, uh, obviously before I'm, I'm going to mispronounce it. Is it Pleiades? Pleiades. Pleiades. Uh, dust, um, and that that's kind of a uh, a leap because um, as different as Colored Sands is, it still follows maybe more of a conventional album format right. where there's a collection of songs. 
Pleadies dust, though, is is I, I mean, I'm gonna use the wrong terminology, just more of like a a, a movement or a, a, it's just like one whole song. That's what? not that's not even wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, all right. See, I got one right, man. Nice, For, bro. Yeah. Every, uh, <laughs> and it's and, and we got it on doc. We, we got it documented too. <laughs> I got my music school moment. But um, what? I mean, I, I know that Luke has a background in classical music, and that's something that uh, he's done a lot of interviews on and spoke, uh, you know, about. What's what's the process going into that? Is that totally new territory for you, or to, to write such a new, a, a, a long song with so many different parts to it? And um, I think did I ever do anything like that? Oh, I've done I've done lots of like sort of more experimental projects that are like less like rock bands that are that format where it's just like one long track or two long tracks. Um, so I have done lots of records like that, but not not with one of my rock bands, so to speak. Um, so yeah, so it was new in that sense, but it also didn't really feel that different because just to speak on a technical level, most of the time that I track a record for a band, I record all the individual songs in one logic session. Yeah. So this was no different. It just, everything ran together. And I've done plenty of rock records with different songs where all the songs run yeah. together too. So in that sense, like the fact that we didn't stick track markers in at the end was really the only difference. Okay, all right. From a technical standpoint. Yeah, yeah. Other than that, yeah. we just, like, we recorded it the same way we would have recorded songs. We did, were like, um, let's do this chunk. Yeah. And we yeah. did that chunk, and then maybe we did another take of that <laughs> chunk. Okay. And then we did the next chunk. You know what I mean? Like, so we might have done bigger chunks because of the scope. Yeah, But, yeah. you know, that's like, let's say you're a Doom band. You're going to do chunks that are longer than if you're a grindcore yeah. band. So, yeah. not not such a different process. Okay, makes sense, man. What, well... Uh, that being said, what is something that you have taken away from working with Luke LeMay and the experience of being in Gorguts? Oh my god. Um, I, I feel like the the most significant thing is just Luke's relationship with music and, and, and creativity. It's just like, I don't know anybody else who's just as stoked and as, and as excited. <laughs> He's a fun guy to talk to as someone who's just had a few conversations with him. I, I don't I don't know him very well personally, but I have met him obviously and, and talked to him and he just seems very positive guy, very excited about music, like yeah. you said, you know. Um he's he's such a genuine guy. There's yeah. like zero bullshit <laughs> ego. Like it's yeah. it just so like less than negative ego. I mean, the dude is as excited about death metal now as like anybody was you know like <laughs> when they first heard scream bloody gore or whatever yes, you know what I mean? like that yeah. and he'll talk about it Luke would be, yes like when they heard scream bloody gore it was like amazing and, you know and now he'll like listen to pleiades dust a hundred times and be like, it's amazing i'm so excited about it you know it's just <laughs> like awesome. i i it's it's so yeah. encouraging because especially in new york city there's a <laughs> there's a vibe of being too cool for school and mm. you yeah, know not yeah, wanting yeah. to like your own shit that much and you know, because maybe it seems conceited or something. I don't know. Like, um, and he's not afraid to wear a Gorgas shirt on stage and talk about how much he loves his own music and 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 enjoy making it. And I'm just like, yes, you're fucking being honest with yourself, and yeah, and you yeah. love what you're doing. And I I love that. And it, it's I think it's definitely encouraged me to be like just to really value like the experience of creativity. Wow. Like it's yeah. like what. What is a deeper experience than creating art in this world? Well, for for a lot of people like us who are you know so involved in music and bands, there's not much else you know that that, that goes deeper. Uh, wow! So 
Man, I'd love to pick your brain more about recording bands and gore guts for like another three hours, but we gotta. <laughs> we're already like running running long here, man. These um, podcasts get they have to got, have to have the focus. See, that's why the ping episode worked so well. Yeah, it's because you yeah, got that like. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, the straight straight blast. Right <laughs> uh, so we'll, we can kind of. I think we could kind of leave it off here. We've covered your bands and a lot about your recording and all that, man. And um. Uh, maybe just before we get into the album recommendations, is, are, is there anything coming up that you've worked on or that you are working on that you're, you're allowed to tell us, first of all, that mm-hmm. the band is working with you or anything of your own projects that you haven't mentioned that you want to plug? Mm, okay, I actually just did, a, I just did a recording session, which I'm not allowed to talk about, which is funny because okay. that doesn't happen that often. Okay. Um, but I was super stoked about that. Um, so down the line, you'll hear about that. Okay, cool. Um, what else? Oh, I got to master of a Revenge 7-inch. That was kind of cool. I never okay. thought I would work with that band. That's pretty sick. All right. Because uh, I, had, I had mastered uh, some Antediluvian stuff, which is the yeah. current bass player. Uh, since Helm Camp isn't in the band anymore, they got... Um, uh, why am I clutching on his name? Oh, I'm so horrible with names. Um, but anyway, the guitarist from Antediluvian plays bass in Revenge these days and does, does the death metal vocals and stuff. And... Uh, so he was he suggested me and I ended up working with them and that was a really cool experience too because you're dealing with these very sort of traditional metal dudes and you know I'm very adamant when I'm mastering stuff about like not doing over compressed masters and so they got it back and they were kind of like you know this this doesn't seem as loud as what we're used to like what's going on and I explained to them about the difference between dynamics and loudness and how you know they're totally separate things you know anyway I explained why I don't compressed masters as much as I do and they were like wow thanks for explaining that to us that makes sense like cool (laughs) like maybe we'll work with you again you know so so that was one of those cases where like this band has this image of being very like standoffish yeah yeah and very much set in their ways and it's just like wow no they're just fucking people and you can explain something to them that they maybe hadn't thought of before and they're like, yeah, cool. Not, not just that cave, makes sense. cavemen ready to like hit you over the head with the club. Yeah, and it's, you know, like lesson learned, man, like for all metal bands and all people that you think, of, the artists that you think of who whose work would make you think that the person is like not somebody you'd want to like talk to or that you yeah. can't relate to. And that's not true. Every, all the music that's ever been made was made by people and... Mm. Yeah, yeah, sure. Some of them you don't want to hang out with, but like <laughs> yeah. the mass majority of them, you could probably have a fine, normal conversation with. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you could like understand each other and yeah. <laughs> just for just from a sort of a sonic standpoint, um, a record that's about to come out that I thought came out really good was the new Falls of Rauros. They're okay. kind of like a modern style black metal band from Portland, Maine. Okay. And uh, it's much more like rock infused metal where there's like lots of guitar solos, like tons of like harmonies and- um, Oh, that's cool. They really, they really like are a pretty amazing kind of like guitar hero-y band. I kind of view them as, I don't think they come off that way to that many people, but with this record, I mean, they did so many overdubs and melodies and work with like layering harmonies and stuff that uh, that was really fun. That was really fun one to work on. And I think the way it sounds is like, kind of like, I'm like, yeah, like this sounds like full and heavy and tight and like all all the sort of things I would want to achieve on a metal mix. Yeah. And they were happy with it and I was happy with it. So, hey, what more can you ask for? Awesome. Nice. Awesome. And um, oh, well, one thing I didn't ask you about Gore is Goreguts working on new music or what what can we expect from Goreguts? Uh nothing to report really. 
uh, like we were gonna maybe start working on stuff soon and um, yeah maybe there's, there's maybe there's some stuff I shouldn't get into not like bad blood or like problems in the band or anything but just yeah. like stuff in people's personal lives that are taking precedence the logistics and things I get it um, so yeah so and, and Luke also I think he just needed a break from the band and um, he wanted to write he wanted to do some different music for a while and Luke unlike me is that he has to do one thing at a time I have to do 10 things at a time. He has to do one thing at a time. Okay. So he did this string trio uh, maybe a year or two ago, like classical music that was really cool. And then after that, he worked on um, music for a play, but really you could think of it as a film score because it wasn't for live musicians. It was like he made something that sounds very much like a film score in his computer. Yeah. And then that was played over speakers at the play. Okay. So, um, you know even different from classical and rock like here's this like uh, you know basically like doing movie music wow very, um, very busy guy yeah. yeah so I mean but you know he every project he does he takes months or he takes a year to do Dedication, it and he really yeah. sinks and it's like it's I, I find this so awesome and hilarious at the same time but every time the two times he's written lyrics for Gorguts in the band it's not like he just kind of like was like alright this is what I want to write about and here we go uh, here's first draft and then maybe I'll fix it it's like he's like no, what is the, gonna be the concept of the new album? All right, it's gonna be this. He gets really, he has to wait until he gets inspired, and then he gets inspired, and then he like goes to the library in the bookstore, and he and he buys and checks out like a stack of books this high on the subject, oh. and reads them all, and takes notes like he's in school. That's really inspiring and to me. And learns about the House of Wisdom. Wow. And, and then writes his lyrics. And the thing is, his lyrics are very poetic and, and, yeah. and not super verbose. So it's not like he's giving you a ton of information, but still he feels the need to be fully educated on the subject before even writing one word about it. I, I love that. And it's very inspiring to me as a, a lyricist. That's, yeah. you know, that, that makes me want to want to get more in depth with what I write about, man. That's awesome, man. Well, awesome. So. Uh, I mean, with no further ado then, Colin, do you want to just recommend to the listeners and to us um, uh, some something like we always do, something older and something newer, it could be anything, just something that maybe you think the listeners should check out? Sure, yeah. Um, okay, so for something older, I think the, the, the thing I'll bring up is, and you know, old and new are very relative terms but um, well we, we actually we have a general rule that we break you know very very frequently yeah. but old is like 15 years or older okay and all right newer is like within the last year okay you know good, what I mean? good all right I like we, we fudge it from time to time you know? mm -hmm. um so i'm gonna say the album heresy by universe zero which is their their uh third album oh my gosh man i'm forgetting all sorts of stuff today or is it the <laughs> second one no it's the third uh and that's, I think it came out in 1979. Mm. Um, Universe Zero is a band from Belgium that's uh, instrumental progressive rock, for lack of a better term, um, but very, very influenced by 20th century chamber music, so like Stravinsky and Bartok. Um, so they have non-rock instruments in the group. So they, the, the leader is the drummer who writes most of the music, but there's a couple writers at various points in the band's career. And then they have, um, they do, they would have electric bass and at the beginning they had electric guitar, but they, they phased it out after, mm -hmm. after a while. And then they would usually have bassoon, oboe, violin or cello, um, and, uh, harmonium or piano. Okay. And it's kind of like the octopus stuff. It's like written music. 
yeah. played by a, kind of like more of a rock band. So it's this interesting nexus of rock music and classical music. They they have their own genre, not for the band, but rock and opposition is what they're is the 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 style that people attribute to them. Which I think uh, that was the name of a festival um, that. Uh, um, not Art Bears, but what was the band that they turned into? Uh, Henry Cow, which is a kind of another experimental kind of nexus of Prague and classical. Mm -hmm. So uh, they're part of this world of kind of like yeah, arty rock mixed mixed into the into the avant-garde classical world. And Heresy is a cool record because it's still to this day I think one of the darkest, most foreboding records I've ever heard. I mean, more so than most death metal because with death metal. There's atmosphere, but most of the time, with most shit that's like really fast, and I don't know, there's a degree of supernatural ridiculousness to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is what I love about it, but I know me, what you mean. Me too. I know so, what you mean. Totally. I know, yeah, yeah. But it's like the kind of thing where it's almost more like horror movie scary than it is yeah. like real life scary. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Universe Zero is like a little closer to real life scary, but obviously it's still music, so it's like how much yeah. is it ever going to scare you? But you know, it scared me as a kid. Wow. And okay. uh, the first song on Heresy uh, has, I think, the first instance of death, mo death metal vocals that I can think of. The band is instrumental, but the bass player would sometimes sing, and there's just one section of the first song where he does this this sort of chanted death metal growl, and I just remember, like, I had already heard death metal at the time that I heard it, but yeah. just thinking, like, this is such a cool context for this style to be in. Yeah. And it's not like somebody just came up with it now. I mean, this was, like, before death metal even existed. This is 79, you said. 79, right? like, before, yeah. you know, like, almost yeah. before thrash metal even existed. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. this is, like, before. Whoa. So that's a cool element of it, and uh, I like another thing I like about the record is that it it has equal doses of kind of this intricate technical musiciany shit that I usually gra gravitate towards, and this atmospheric, overwhelming, foreboding vibe. Yeah, that's like the other part of music that I really like, and I feel like yes, both. I want both. Like yeah. I don't want I don't want to pick one. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, most yeah, people yeah. feel like you got you got to you got to make cerebral music. Yeah, that's heartless and soulless. And you know, octopus gets called that all the time. And then you have shit that's like heartfelt music. That's you know you know I don't know what that is. Bob Dylan or something. <laughs> no disrespect to Bob Dylan. I it, yeah, but yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Like no, it's got to be a song. It's got to have a discernible pulse and rhythm or something. Or it's got to be like movie music where I'm I can accept the fact that it's abstract but I have to have some visual to give it yeah. context to make me feel like I'm not like an insane person listening to this right um, so I feel like the Universe Zero record has like all those things at the same time and you can put it on as creepy background music or you can put it on and focus on it and focus on the compositional aspect of it and uh, um, you know sort of has something to offer for like all the things that I enjoy about music wow I, I gotta check that out that sounds awesome um, the new the new record to talk about though I didn't really come up with anything so I'm gonna have to pull something out. Uh, oh okay, how about this? Here's an easy one. I'm just gonna give a shout out to Akakor so because that was Elian's old uh, death metal band. Okay. Um, the repping it here. Okay, and, and that's uh, just for the listeners. That's spelled A K A K O R. And uh, so they were a band based out of Calgary, Canada, um, in. When were they around? I, I guess maybe, I don't remember the exact dates of the band, but um, like late, uh, maybe 2009, maybe seven to 11 or something. 
maybe those four or five years in there. And they were, Elian was the bass player, there was two guitars and drums. And they're like, I guess you could call them like technical brutal death metal, but not, not as much of an emphasis on the brutal death metal. Um, almost more like tech grind mixed with tech metal. Um, death metal vocals, but the vocals are definitely not like a main thing for the band. Uh, it's m much more about the instrumental um, quality. It's almost like if you took a little bit of the element of the Steve Hurdle Gorgut style, but then combine that with a Deeds of Flesh, uh, like more fast, hyper fast, and there's gravity blasts. So there's there's like very fast and very slow combined. They have some riffs that have that more Gorgutsy, ulcerate kind of like drone string with dissonant notes moving around uh, 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 it. But then they have shit yeah. that's really ripping and more more brutal and fast and like crazy tapping riffs. And Elian, um, kind of like me, she does a lot of tapping on the bass, so that's like an element of their sound. And uh, it was a sad story because they made they made a, a demo slash EP and then we're, for years we're working on this full-length album, this really ambitious, ambitious full-length. And they tracked the drums for it, and they got most of the guitars done and a little bit of the bass, and then the band fell apart. Um, so then I met Eliane, and there was kind of this record like half done, and I was just like, I, I, was, I, I heard her band, and I was just like, this band is incredible. Like, I can't believe nobody knows about this. And you have a record that's just kind of like almost finished. Like, can we finish it? <laughs> like, can I help you finish yeah. it, you know? So I offered to help her, uh, you know, record her bass parts that were needed, like left to be recorded, and then uh, and then did reamping and and mixing and mastering, um, just because I wanted to hear the record. I was yeah. like, I was like, this band is so killer, and the fact that no one gets to hear it is sad. But especially like I just want to hear it. Like let me just let me just yeah. do this so that so that the band can say they finished it. Mm. And so that, like, at, at least Eliane can can hear it and say I finished it, and I can enjoy it. Um, and it's a really it's really stellar compositions. Um, they didn't end up doing vocals for the record because those weren't finished. And it seemed like after all these years had passed, uh, eight or nine years or whatever, that like let's just finish it instrumentally and just call it a day because the band the yeah. band had been defunct for so long. Um, so that was the plan, and I think it's cool. Uh, you know, I'm obviously more predisposed to like just be into instrumental music, but I really think that it's one of those bands. No disrespect to the vocals in the band because they were totally fine, but that it didn't need them. Yeah. It was one yeah. of these things where, like, if they had been added, it would have been great. It would have been even better, but it wasn't like such an important part of the band sound that you couldn't enjoy it without them. Yeah, it's not like if you took like a verse, chorus, verse, chorus rock band and stripped the vocals out. Exactly. I, yeah, I, yeah. I and a lot of instrumental bands. This is my complaint about most stuff called post rock. That's not the like indie rock post rock, but the more metally post rock uh, bands that they, they just always have 15 minute songs and it's just a big build up <laughs> on one chord. I mean, that's the kind of music where I'm just like, please have a singer, like yeah, at yeah. least just or a lead or something. Like have mm. some kind of thing to focus on rather than this wallpaper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Akakor, opposite of wallpaper. This <laughs> shit you put on and you're just like, yeah, whoa, all right. Like, you're just transfixed. It's like, it's like edge of your seat kind of music, you know? What's the, uh, what's the album title? Uh, I think it's just self-titled. Self-titled. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's just on Bandcamp. They, they decided yeah. to do a, not even a pay what you want, but just a free download. Okay. Um, oh, so you got no excuse. Everybody's got to check Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, uh... It was also because the, the band got into a really bad car accident. I think it was in 2009. Okay. And um, 
it was kind of a symbolic moment of like, you know, we almost died being in this band. It was when they were like coming, either going to or coming back from a show in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And uh, Elian and Craig, the one of the guitarists in the band, got like, you know, were hospitalized for a long time. So like, she still has um, in- injuries from it, so like that persist to this day. I mean, it was a bad accident, very near death. And so I think for them to to finish the record, it was like kind of like they were almost like dedicated it's i think they put a blurb about it on the band camp page but they almost like dedicated it to the fact that they're all still alive and right a little bit of closure to like a traumatic exactly and also yeah it gives it gives that almost a little bit more meaning like you know like what did we almost die for wow i I, uh yeah i'm definitely gonna check this out when i get home man that's very interesting that's uh akakor a-k-a-k-o-r yeah so it's actually a record that was mostly recorded like um uh uh, you know a bunch of years ago but then was sort of finished more recently Okay. All right, man. Awesome. And um, all right, so that's it, man. Uh, you know, it's like I said, I could pick your brains about gore guts and working with Luke and recording bands here in Queens all night. But we appreciate um, you welcoming us here into your studio. Absolutely. Answering all the questions and being as open as, as you have been, Colin, man. It's been a real pleasure, man. Thank you so much Ab- for absolutely. being on the Heavy Hole Podcast. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for your time, man. Yeah. Really appreciate it. I am yeah. happy to be here. Uh, <laughs> any, anything you just want to say? Uh, peace out to the listeners or anything? Um, oh, well, I, I was thinking about talking. I have a solo show this Saturday, but this probably won't be posted until after that, right? Not, not this week, I don't think, right? Yeah. Okay, so... I hope you enjoyed my solo show if you went there you go. <laughs> on Saturday. We, we will share it on the social media. Yeah. Cool. But we're, we're not going to interview this guy, so don't, you know, just, we're going to keep the surprise, but th- just in case there's a show. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Heavy Hole Podcast, Colin Marston. Thanks a lot. Peace. Peace.